Hey, folks. If you enjoyed the last time we did this, then get ready for another great roundtable discussion of the French army during World War I. I would highly suggest get yourself a cup of something, take a seat, probably going to need a notebook and a pen. I think it's going to be a really great conversation. I really hope you enjoy. So, hey, folks, this is Mike from the Battles of the First World War podcast. So we are back and having a second roundtable discussion of the French army during World War I. So once again, uh, we are with some of the best great war historians in the field today. This time, we're also joined by some folks who were not with us last time. So with me this evening, we have, we have Christina Holstein, author of several incredible guides to the Verdun battlefield, amongst other published works and articles. We have returning Alex Lyons, the man who spends his free time telling us the story of his Poilu great-grandfather on Twitter. And just so all listeners know, Alex operates under several noms de guerre. So during this episode, he might be called Andre. He might be called Andy. He might even be called the more mysterious and a little bit ominous pumpkin. <laughs> we have Steve, uh, Steve Marsden, who is a student and researcher of the 1914 Battle of the Frontiers and its effects. We have Jim Smithson, who we will call Jim. And Jim said he was boring Jim, but he is not boring Jim by any means. We will just call him Jim. Jim is the author of A Taste of Success, The First Battle of the Scarp, the opening phase of the Battle of Arras, 9-14 April 1917, as well as the author of two guidebooks on the Arras battlefields. And joining us today for the first time, as well as Christina, we have James. I'm gonna I'm gonna do your last name the, the German way. Is it Taub? It's Taub. It is Taub. short for uh, short for Tabachnik. So if you just go Taub. Oh, Taub. Yeah. oh right. Yeah. All right. James Taub, who we who for for clarity, we will we will call James in this in this recording. James is the associate curator at the Museum of the American Revolution in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And there's a thing here, Go Birds, which absolutely that sounds good. Fly Eagles Fly. There you go, man. There you go. I'm the only guy in New England who doesn't follow sports, so <laughs> it's cool. We we can do Eagles here. Uh, James is also a public historian with a specialty in French history and his presentation to American audiences. And if you guys don't follow him on Twitter, um, my God, you need to, because he's always posting great stuff up there. All right. Not with us today are Bart DeBeer, uh, Bryn Hammond, and Dr. Rich Willis, who is off celebrating his birthday. So when you listen to this, happy birthday, Rich. Okay. So again, these episodes are the brainchild of Alex Lyons, who was on the podcast back in December to discuss the experiences of his great-grandfather, a French participant in the war. And again, we have a great group here, one full of enthusiasm for the subject matter. And as before, you must please forgive me for anything that may happen technically. All right. So with that, we'll go ahead and begin and if we could begin with uh, Christina, could you tell us just a, a bit more about yourself and how you became interested in the, the Great War? 
Well, sort of by accident, really, because um, I was always interested in military history, but it was the Victorian period uh, rather than the First World War. I don't know if I've got ancestors who fought in the First World War. If I have, I've, ne I've never found any. I mean, I haven't looked for them, but I don't know of any. And uh, when I was little, there were lots and lots of veterans of the First World War around. So if they'd been in the family, I'd have known. But I was living abroad, living in Luxembourg, looking for other people who were interested in military history, couldn't find any, and then thought, well, I live near the Western Front. Um, I'll find other people who are interested in the Western Front. So I came across this World War One Association that you all know about in Britain and joined that, not out of any interest in World War One at all, and then discovered that their view of the Western Front wasn't actually the Western Front, it was only the British part, and so... Uh, I had all this other part to play with and play in and discovered all sorts of other groups doing things there, um, exploring, you know, looking at stuff, uh, doing a lot of exploring on the ground. In those days, 30 years ago, you could do things you can't do now. Um, so I joined local groups and um, we all spoke French in the, my, my husband and kids. Our family used to go down and join in these do's and days and, week and weekends and just um, I learned the battle on the ground. So Verdun, the Argonne, the Meuse-Argonne, um, a little bit of Eastern Champagne, but that was a bit far for me from Luxembourg. Uh, Saint, um, it was all within a very easy drive for me and I could just go down there when I felt like it and mess about. And um, It was all like you're just a huge giant playground where I had it all to myself and uh, lots of people I got to know who knew it very well and particularly local people with very deep roots in the area who had who were the children of veterans. I only ever met one veteran and he wasn't a local man. Uh, but to the children and, and families of veterans, um, people who'd lived in the area for hundreds of years and and knew it well and knew knew it before the war, saw the Germans arrive, um, you know, in some cases as small children lived with the Germans through the war in the in the invaded in the uh, uh you know in the villages that were occupied, um, played with them, got to know them, you know, um, learned to speak German as kids. And then saw them leave at the end. Uh, and then, you know, life had to be put back together. People came back, cleared the battlefields. Um, I met all sorts of people who'd done all sorts of interesting things. And and the battles were not something that was history. It was alive. It was, it was still pain, but it was part of their life. It wasn't something you'd read, they'd read about in a book. It was something they lived. And that was just fascinating. I met really elderly people who'd been refugees in 1914. Um, seen the Germans. I remember one woman saying that as a little girl, she, you know, she was out in the fields with her parents, and and they knew the Germans were coming, and they could they saw the Uhlans arrive. Just fascinating stuff. And so they sort of got stuck, really. <laughs> and, uh, started writing the odd article and attracted the attention of the. Uh, the series editor for Battleground Europe, Pen and Sword, who wrote to me about um, 20 years ago now and out of the blue and said, would I consider contributing a book to their series? And I thought, oh, no, <laughs> certainly not. I don't know anything like enough. And then I thought, well, that's a chance that never comes twice. So I'll, I'll do that. And it was an enormous learning curve. 
Um, and it was good, you know. And I just kept on going back and digging a bit more and digging a bit more. And because I only lived 60 miles away from, from Verdun, I could go once the kids got bigger. I could go there a lot and mess about, just mess about, you know, and, and walk and have a look at stuff and drift around in the in the forest and see what was left, think about it, go and look up why it was there, what was happening, go back and have another look. All tremendous stuff. I mean, it's been such a privilege. But it was all by accident. It wasn't intended, and I didn't mean to write anything. And I, I find writing difficult, and and I'm not fast. Um, but I've learned a lot, and and those battlefields are extraordinary because there is so much left. And if you go to the, you know, the British end of the front, you read about stuff, but you can't see it. So you know there were batteries here, for example, or there, or there were trenches here or there, or there were bunkers here or there, but you can't see them. Well, you can in the battlefields that I know, and you, you can go inside them and you can see what they were like. And, you know, it's just, it's a different thing. The battle lives, the war lives, and that's... Um, that, I think that's a remarkable thing. I try and get that over, and I don't know if I succeed, but that's what I try and get over in the books. That this was. Somebody said to me one day, "Why do you take so much trouble with it?" And I said, "Because it's it's not my story. This is this, this is other people lived this. Like Alex's great grandfather, he lived that. I have to be careful with what what I'm writing." because it's their story and all I'm doing is telling it. I didn't have to live that. I didn't have to do those things. And sometimes it stops me in my tracks when I'm, when I'm walking. I remember particularly on the left bank, that happened often, to think of people, you know, dealing with those challenges every day. Extraordinary. But so, so I got into it by accident, really, and um, it's been a huge privilege. And... I don't know if it makes any sense to anybody else, but but it's it's a living thing, and um, you know it's it's not just history in the past. It's it's well, I'm not sure it's even history. I mean, it's affected Europe, well, affected the world, but certainly affected Europe, and certainly affected France and Germany very deeply. And of course, I lived in Luxembourg. You know, Luxembourg is a the European Union is a direct product of the of the First World War, in my view, and particularly the Battle of Verdun. And there I was living in Luxembourg, you know, in the middle of it. So it was, anyway, does that make any sense? I don't know if it does. So I've probably taken far too much time. No, 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 no time limit here. And I, I absolutely makes sense to me. I, I, I think I spoke last episode that when you're in the, the Meuse, it, the war feels like very much uh, a presence there that that it particularly in sites like like we mentioned before like Vauquois and and around Verdun like there's it, there's a sense that um that it al- it almost just ended like it's it's still very much there and I'm sure everybody I see everybody you know nodding uh here as well so I completely understand what you're saying and and the the commitment to accuracy of of telling their story as they told it and not not as we see it now um just as a quick aside like it's difficult 
a lot of times here in, in the U.S., there's a, you know, there's a big controversy that I won't, won't get to into too much. But, you know, the morning of November 11th, the AEF was still launching infantry attacks. And, and yeah. why? Um, mm. Well, it was it was a different circumstance uh, yeah. on that day. So, you know, and we have to record it as they saw it on November 11th, 1918, not me writing about it 104 years later or whatever. Yeah. So I, yeah, I, that's, that's absolutely right. Yeah. So awesome. Thank you, James. How did, how did you um, get involved uh, in, in the great war? Uh, so very much in the same way uh, as Christina mentioned, it was somewhat by accident. Um, I in much, you know, as the two Americans on the call here, uh, I think, you know, we can, Mike, we can uh, kind of relate. The First World War isn't very much taught in the U.S., um, so it, it is, I, I am very privileged in the ways in which I became interested growing up. I'm originally from Michigan. And so I was always very interested in the American civil war as well as the second world war, which are really the two time periods in history we talk about. Yep. Um, and, um, so I've grown up going to Gettysburg, uh, doing all of those battlefields. Um, and my, my interest in the first world war, my interest in French history kind of, are on separate paths and ended up coincidentally meeting up. Uh, growing up in Michigan, our colonial history is French. Um, you know, you think of Detroit or Fort Mackinac, um, Fort Saint Joseph, all uh, in the west of the state. I had a small interest in the early colonial history in Michigan with the Voyageurs, and beyond that, my big focus was the Civil War. Um, but I am extremely lucky to have the family that I do. They really encourage travel, learning about other cultures, learning about other peoples, and particularly my grandparents. Uh, and I was lucky enough on one trip that my grandpa and grandma, Arnold and Ellen, had a meeting in Brussels. And they said, oh, well, you know, we have an extra seat. Come with us. And I was very excited to see the bulge. Right. I wanted to go to Bastogne. I wanted to see where uh, all where Patton was. Um and all of those are any waffles. Those are like the two things that a 14 year old American boy wanted to do. Um, and just by chance, they took me to eat. I was not super excited about it, but uh, I didn't realize until I got back how emotional it was and how much it impacted me. And my love for the First World War really started there. Uh, I followed it. And because of the ways in which we do get First World War history in the U.S., whether that be public history or taught in school, we really do tend to get it from a British perspective. And having Eat be the first site that I visited, uh, I really heavily and doubled down, tripled down even on following British history, which is what I majored in in my undergraduate, uh, spent a year in Norwich uh, studying abroad, and then um, worked in the public history sector after I graduated. Um, then proudly got my master's degree in war studies at the University of Glasgow. I'm very proud to say I'm a member, uh, a product of the Scottish education system, for better or for worse. And um, it was during that time, during the centenary, that uh, I also sort of had the same revelation that Christina did of uh, there seems to be a whole section of the Western Front and the greater war that we aren't really talking about here, particularly when it comes to the Somme, particularly when it, it came to those big battles that, that had huge anniversaries marking them. Um, and I also slowly but surely grew my interest in the Americans in the war, which is something we really don't talk about in the U.S. If, if we tend to get World War I uh, in the U.S. at a, at a pre-university level, it's an English class, and it's via the, the war poets. So um, 
we, I slowly and surely started to get involved in academic discussions of the American Expeditionary Forces. My connection, like Alexander, is uh, my great-great-uncle, who I take my middle name, Michael, from. His name is Morris Polsky. You've eloquently covered some of his actions earlier in, in this uh, podcast series. He was in the 3rd oh. Division. Oh. Um and served right. at the Second Battle of the Marne, uh, Saint Michiel, and was in the Meuse Argonne as well. Um, he was in the 18th Field Artillery, and I had, I'm lucky enough to have his diary. Um, oh, wow! So, uh, yeah, it, and it's really, really moving accounts. Really, really, he talks just as much about baseball games as he does about his friends being killed. So, young uh, guy from Nebraska, um, and uh, but. Uh, I was realizing with all of that, as you begin to really study the Americans and push the American narrative, that you can't do that without understanding the French. Uh, it is my academic point of view that the American Expeditionary Force or extension of the French Army in 1918, with some exceptions, um, the Americans operate as French divisions, uh, mm. uh, even though they are told not to. I think when push comes to shove and they start taking fire, they really start listening to the French uh, liaisons and the the teachers that have had said, hey, this has been in our experience over the past four years. Um, and then through that realized, of course, we have all of this. Alexander mentions before we started recording, we have all of the sort of stereotypes as well, especially here in the United States, but um, as well in Britain and other countries towards French military history in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and with my double sort of interest in my French background coming from Michigan uh, and my deep passion for World War One and military history and seeing a lot of Americans and British uh, folks uh, in my circles who sort of have this one view without really digging in and looking at it. Um, I said, there's a whole niche here that's not been explored. And there are amazing French historians who have done great work on the French army of the First World War. I'm sure we've on the previous episodes, you've talked about Michel Goya or uh, Andre Louet. Um, all of, uh, and even English speaking ones, like, uh, unfortunately we no longer have her, but Elizabeth Greenhall. Um, but, uh, there's still so much that hasn't been sort of open. So it, for me, it was, it was three amazing avenues that all led me to the same situation. I had this interest in French. Um, I speak it very poorly and I read it very poorly, but I've just enough to get the gist of things. Uh, I have this interest in the Great War, and very selfishly, there's this amazing career opportunity to do something that no one else is doing, uh, especially within the United States. Uh, and it, it's I've taken that both to the First World War and into the 18th century as well. But I learned during my time at the U.S. World War One Centennial Commission, as well as at the National World War One Museum and Memorial in Kansas City, that it's a story that people are interested in. It's a story that people don't know where to find resources for. And 2014 to 2018 really changed the narrative. People are becoming aware of it, and they're just looking for ways to to digest information and and see where to find it. So that's kind of my roundabout way of coming to our topic today. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. So you being from Michigan, it's um, super cool. Like I try to tell like uh, my students that you know you you guys call it Detroit, but you know of course it was originally called. Detroit, and uh, you know they're like, "What?" Like, yeah, oh yeah, man, yeah, that's what yeah. it used to be called. And one of my uh, favorite things, and because I went out to college here in Pennsylvania, one of my favorite things was to try to get East Coasters to pronounce city names in the Midwest, because <laughs> they're all old Norman French or Native American, um, and they really struggle. Yeah, yeah, we we do the same here in Massachusetts. So <laughs> right, right next to me is the is the town that, to I suspect, um, 
most folks here would would look like Gloucester, but um, very much cut off in its in its Gloucester. So, um, and don't you forget it. Uh, it's, um, but yeah, and also James, before we get into the the subject matter of the day, so I've got to confirm something. Um, yes, I am very lucky in in my teaching job. Like I like I've said before, I'm, I'm a high school history teacher. So I, I'm very lucky in that I get to teach all four grades. So with my freshman the other day, we're, we were talking about the revolution and the Revolutionary War and uh, showing them a short video clip from the American Battlefield Trust, mm-hmm. looking at the, the Battle of the Cowpens um, down in South Carolina. I did have to stop the video because I was like, oh, my God, I know that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, I've been known to appear as a Revolutionary War uh, soldier, both in red or in blue. Yeah. Um, depending on how I feel that day. But, so that, uh, <laughs> was, that was super cool. I was like, oh, my God, I know that guy. Like, we're friends on Facebook, you know? So, like, uh, <laughs> so it, was, it was awesome. So, yes. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. You know, like, World War I was, I remember barely touching it in, in history and I, uh, in high school, and I had to do it all myself um, <clears throat> major. um yeah absolutely absolutely all right so to get people to understand more of the french experience in in the first world war we'll go ahead and we'll look at we'll start looking at today's questions um okay so as i wrote here in our in our shared google doc um in the spirit of starting off low and then aiming higher uh let's kick it off with some negativity so what narrative on the French army irritates you the most? And if we could, we'll go ahead and we'll begin with Alex. Yeah, so what irritates me the most? Uh, you could probably do a long list um, that starts talking about red trousers. You start talking about taxis on the Marne and things like that. And there's two that kind of boil down to one's just a phrase because it's something which I think, as Christina was alluding to, it's about being factually correct with things. And the ils ne passeront pas, I mean, everyone seems to think it was Pétain that said it. And it's kind of like, well, it wasn't. It was, it was Nivelle. <laughs> as much as it, it's not great to, uh, to obviously give too much glory to Mr Nivelle, who uh, in 17... Wasn't, wasn't so good. The reality is it, it, it was Nivelle that said it and actually didn't even say it in that specific phrase. Um, but again, as I always say, it's easy to make mistakes on these things because even, for example, uh, Richard Holmes in his book, The Western Western Front, he even says that it was Pétain that said that phrase as well. Mm-hmm. So again, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mistake to, that's easily made. But again, it's about being just factually correct about everything but the one i'm going to actually really kind of develop a a little bit more into is around the whole 1917 and the mutinies well the mutinies obviously with the whole chemin de dam added as being the catalyst towards it but it's always something that gets banded around as being the french army gave up and thousands were shot that that's the narrative that everybody will always will always trot out and what I always like to do is that because in France there's been a lot of research actually done around les fusillés, les fusillés pour l'exemple. And when you start breaking down the figures, 
that's where it becomes really a really interesting discussion with people because in total, in terms of military shot, because again, there's, a, there's around 1,010, but then there's different types in there. But within the ones which are classed as military, it's, well, supposedly at the moment, the latest figure is 687 in terms of uh, throughout the whole war who were shot. And the majority was actually 1915. Uh, 1915 is where you've got the most, followed very closely by 1914. Then after that, it's 1916. And only in fourth place is 1917. And the total, um, in terms of the figures that, uh, that I've read and the one that seems to be the one that most most people agree with is 88, um, being Fusiapol example. So it kind of brings into perspective, but it also brings into perspective what was going on in 1415, which we kind of alluded to in the in the previous podcast with Joff being very kind of, well, we need to show people what we're doing here. But if we then kind of look at it in terms of then, well, there wasn't actually that many shots, but also at the same time, well, the French army was just kind of, they just gave up with that. That's not, that's a bad way to look at things because if you look at it in some of the figures that I've seen, it's around 40,000 soldiers who are deemed to be affected by mutiny or disobedience, as you saw, as they would kind of put it. That's 40,000 within the size of the French army. And this is not all at the same time as well. That's quite a small number, if you think about it. But because of the fact that you've got things like the, what was it? I think it was the 307th Regiment, um, some of them who tried to take the train and they wanted to go to Paris, etc. That becomes kind of a flag bearer for this, this disobedience and this kind of, oh, well, we don't want to fight again that's that's something that needs to really be looked at because it's not that they didn't want to fight they just wanted better conditions they did it's it, it's it's purely that i mean the reason why this kind of imploded as well is the fact that you've got to also look at it that these aren't professional soldiers the majority of them they deem themselves to be citizens in that sense, because and as citizens, you have the right to strike in France and you have the right to do certain things. So that is kind of one of the big elements. But obviously for them, it was all about conditions. Their conditions were so bad compared to um, their their allies. So for them, it was just about getting better pay. It was also uh, making sure that they had leave. They, as we've mentioned before, leave was just not not. I'm just surprised it took the French army so long to actually sort something like that out. <clears throat> Um, and then also, because if you look at that period, you just had in February 1917 with Russia, the Russian Revolution. I mean, it was ripe for it. You had then the Chemin des Dames. The catalysts were all there for these things to happen. But again, as we previously mentioned, the French army managed to then rescue itself. And obviously it was Pétain, who obviously was the, the flag bearer to be able to let's say, pull the army a bit up by the scruff of its neck, changed, obviously, leave. So leave went from, previously it was at 13%. So when when a regiment was at rest, only 13% of the army of that regiment was allowed to go on leave. It got changed to anywhere between 25 and 50%. I mean, that's just, just a massive change in that respect. And then, obviously, the increase um, in pay, etc. 
what I also like to do, I always like to put a twist with a 315 into all of this, because obviously that's <laughs> that's my thing, uh, with the 315 Regiment. And there's an interesting anecdote, anecdote which I always like to to look at, especially when you talk about Pitta and how, and why Pitta kind of helped in that stage after Nivelle in the summer of 1917. And there's an anecdote from one of the 315 soldiers from October 1916. So the 315e is going back to Verdun for their second tour of duty, and they're walking through Sui, obviously where you've got the, the HQ, and as they walk through there, you've got there's the there's the balcony, but then you've got a window next to the balcony. And this soldier from the 315M wrote in a letter home saying that they walked past the the HQ and at the window they could clearly see Nivelle, Manger, and Pétain. All three of them saw the 315M walking through. There was only one of those generals that acknowledged them walk going through. And I guess most people on the call would, on this will guess who that was, and that was obviously Pitta. The mm. other, the other two just completely ignored them. So again, that's the element of him and that connection with his troops, bringing them back from the brink in that sense. But again, I use the word brink. They weren't that as far as far as we as we as some people would let make you believe. Because let's be honest, the British didn't even know this was happening until Pitain to told them about it. So for for that to be happening, it means that there wasn't um, they weren't they were in a bad situation, but it was recoverable, and Pitain knew the steps that were required. And so for me, that's the thing that it's the whole 1917 narrative. It's the narrative about thousands being shot when that's never even anywhere near the uh, near the case. And this element of the French army just kind of just giving up in, in 17 and it becoming a shell of what it used to be. Alex, real quick, just for our listeners, Fusilé pour les hommes, that is shot as an example, correct? For the example. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, so for our listeners, Fusilé pour les hommes, that is shot as an example. So basically shot as a warning to mm -hmm. the other guys to stay in line. Um, <laughs> In France, in the in the French army, every, it's all about the example for everything. I mean, even when you've got what they call the ceremony de dégradation, so the degrading ceremonies when they're for officers, for example, where they would be ripping stripes off their uniform in front of fellow, either their their fellow companies, their battalions, whatever. Again, <laughs> it's very much showing the example to people. You do this, this is what's going to happen. Wow, I, I, I wasn't aware of that, but I, I suppose it, it makes sense. And the, the number of around 88 shot during the French mutinies, um, I, would, I would guess that's probably due to, to Pétain's leadership. Like, he, obviously, he wasn't coming in to, to, you know, break everything and then remold it in his image. He was desperately trying to, to keep the army together and get them and get them functioning again yeah the, the, i mean there was there was obviously a bit of pitta there's also the politicians as well who got in who who will have got, got involved as well but again if you just look at it from the high level point of view yes the amount of people that they were going to shoot was going to be a rather large number but people saw sense in what was going on right all right. Excellent. Thank you. 
Christina, um, you have here that the French were no good at fighting, which is <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a general statement. Yeah. Well, it's something I've heard so often over the years. Um, I mean, first of all, I don't know how they teach the First World War in Britain these days, but when I was at school, which is a long time ago now, um, you really only got the English side of the war. Um, so uh, I'm I'm not sure I even knew the French were there. Um, I mean, I knew the Germans were there, but I'm not sure. I certainly didn't know anything about the French. Although, actually, I, I knew the name of Verdun because the, the First World War names I, I knew of as a, as a child growing up. I knew of Ypres and the Somme and Hellfire Corner and Verdun and Gallipoli. And I, I didn't really know much about them, but I knew there were these places. So when I was... You know, when I when I started uh, researching at Verdun and, and then uh, quite by accident did started doing some guiding, one of the things I found was was with English visitors, and I have to say with Americans as well, the basic attitude was, well, the French were no good. They didn't know how to fight. You know, we did it. Um, uh, you know, we, the Americans, came in and, and showed everybody how to do it. And and we, the British, also showed everybody how to do it. And I had one, one visitor... Um, in Verdun, uh, who got very cross and said that he couldn't really couldn't understand anything at all about Verdun because if we'd been there, we'd have done it in three weeks and knocked the Germans back and it wouldn't have gone on. <laughs> it was just extraordinary. They, they're just a complete dismissal of a country that was the senior partner in the war and held most of the front for most of the war. Um, and it just... I just found it stunning, actually, that it, there was a there was a, com a complete lack of knowledge. But it wasn't just a lack of knowledge; it was an assumption that the French weren't any good. And I'm I've been I remember many years ago, the first time I was at the Battle of the Frontiers area, or was at Rossignol, I think, Steve, um, and thinking, oh my goodness, this is the day before Mons, and the British haven't a clue what's coming. And there was. Um, I think it's in the last um, Western Front Association magazine. There's a review of a, a new translation of Joffre's memoirs, um, which is a, a complete, well, it's the first volume, but it's it's complete. So it's not not the one that uh, Bentley Mott did, which is um, abbreviated. And it, it comments that Mons is not mentioned. Joffre makes no mention of Mons. I thought, well, no, why would he? You know, <laughs> Mons, which is the start of everything for the British, and I'm not saying it should be forgotten, but is nothing compared to what was going on on the Battle of the Frontiers. And yet the British don't know anything at all about the Battle of the Frontiers. And if you tell them, um, I find the attitude is, oh, well, that just shows how terrible they were. You know, they, they were no use. That's, that's why they lost so many men. It's just a dismissal of what the country did for four years, the effort involved. After all, at the end of the war, we went home, the British. We left it behind, and, and France rebuilt itself. We didn't have to rebuild ourselves. It, it's a different thing. But I, I, I'm, I'm just amazed. I've met this so often over 30 years, and it's completely untrue. And I think it really is time that the British discovered that, all right, they've got the Germans opposite, but the French are there, and the French are there on most of it for the whole of the war. And they were there before we got there. Does this idea have to do with France in, in 1940? 
No, I don't think so. I, I think it's it's just it's just just it's just the attitude. You know, we 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 did our bit, and and that's fine, and that's great. And then we went home, and we won the war. You know, well, we don't need to think about anything else. It's a it's a it's a very Anglo-centric attitude. I don't know what the others think, whether Steve or, or Jim would agree with me, but but that's that's certainly the um, the feeling <coughs> I've had, and I've been very struck by visitors to Verdun who just you know, seem to think, well, this is just stupid, you know, why did they go on doing this? Well, they could have done something else without thinking at all about what's involved. I would agree with Christina, but I think it's also exacerbated by the uh, the economical situ- economic situation uh, and the Belgian various tourist offices, because they know full well that the one sort of clients that pay good money are the British. They oh. come over to mm. Flanders, but the French have particularly good battle for it because it, it's their country. They they're not going to bring all that income across to Belgium and visit these these battlefields. But they know for well the British are going to come over, maybe spend two nights and bring money to mm. the economy. So if you go back to the centenary in uh, 2014, there was a map produced about the uh, the fighting of the Battle of the Frontiers of that 22nd, 23rd of August, and about a third of it is the Battle of Mons. Yes. The, the rest of it are just sort of scattered down to the side there. So you got That's right. two core yeah. and they get a third of the publicity for it. And the rest of the the, the, the French effort is sort of condensed into a bit at the bottom. And it's purely yeah. because it's designed for tourists and it propagates the not the myth, but it propagates that feeling that and, and builds up the British involvement, which was negligible. Fact the fact that we were there and we had the navy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But actually, on the Western Front at that time in August 14, it was the French, and pure and simply. But they're not there. They're not good battlefield tourists. And so, from a tourist point of view, and a tourist boat point of view, they act, they don't divert enough resources to uh, publishing information about the French effort because they know full well that. It's going to fall on deaf ears. People are going to uh, be receptive to it to go and bring money into the local economy. So it's down to historians to sort of tell that tale. Uh, so you, you're missing that element that the tourist boards don't sort of present a balanced picture because, well, they're not historians. They're there to bring money into the area through tourism. Mm. That's a good good point. It's a good point. And, and we've spoken uh, privately on our on our ongoing WhatsApp thread about how the, the French are rather siloed with their, with their history, like they're, mm-hmm. they've got the, the Caverne du, du Dragon and then you've got the, the Vaucois sites, but they don't, there's no crosstalk in between them. And there is an organization in France that, that sounds like it's the French version of the Western Front Association, but it doesn't seem anywhere as, as cohesive. Um, so again, like, I think that, that ties in with you know, um, no one is calling attention to these to these French sites. Not not enough, anyways. Right. Well, I think uh, most people's interest is a, a family or regimental interest, or or perhaps it's a, a town or a village. It, it's not a general interest for most people. I think, mind you, I think the same applies in Britain. Most people come to World War One through a you know a family connection or a, an ancestor, or it's their their town or their school or something like that. And France is huge, after all. I mean, it's far bigger than Britain is. And Britain only had this one little bit of the front. 
So in, in France, you, you've got, first of all, you have to travel a great deal further to get to the front. And then the front is much longer. So you might have somebody who only fought in the Vosges, for example, or, or you know, who was only in, in say, uh, Champagne or the Argonne and Badon, and who doesn't do, the, doesn't do the other bits, because that's where the division was or the regiment was. And I, th I think it's I think it's partly that, but you know most I don't I don't think most people come to the First World War out of a general interest. They come out of you come from a specific angle. So if you you know if like Alex's great grandfather, you know a particular regiment, so they're interested in that particular regiment and what what where that regiment was and what that regiment did, and that's understandable. I just want to jump in very quickly as well, because um, Alexandra is probably the only person, uh, I believe, of, of French descent. So on this call, but correct me if I'm wrong. I, I do think it is particularly interesting, both with the question you asked uh, Alexandra at the beginning with the mutinies, as well as to this question. And one of the things that really motivates me and something that I try to keep in the back of my head when discussing any of these topics is, the United States, Great Britain, we have very similar cultures up until this day. They, every single day, it gets closer and closer together, for better or for worse. Um, but I do truly believe that if you look at topics like the mutinies and if you look at topics like battlefield tourism, you really do have to uh, think about French culture and how it views military history in general and how France views their military. Uh, it, it is from you know the perspective of the mutinies that Alexander covered so well. You know, thinking about it as a, a, I would not have as good of an understanding of the mutinies of the French army if I haven't read uh, Andre Loewe's history of the mutinies or if I've never seen a railway strike in France. Uh, understanding the idea of the French citizen soldier as that compares to the citizen soldier of Great Britain or of the United States uh, and their idea of well, we're civilians first. We're just doing this uh, and we're operating in the same way that we would as a civilian when we have grievances. Um, I mean, you're seeing this similarly as we speak with the with the um, retirement age debate going on in the protests uh, in France. Um, so I think that's the first thing. And, and the second thing as well, and a, a unit that I love to cite because it's got strong American connections, the 18th uh, Infantry Regiment, the D3DM, uh, they get disbanded in the 1960s because they're part of the mutiny against General de Gaulle. Um, and there is a strong relationship that is for most people, I would say, if not many people, strongly negative in the connotations of the military in a way that we do not have that in the United States or Great Britain, particularly over the past 20 years. Um, so I, I think that's something for many English speaking tourists to, to keep in mind as well. France, of course, has a very different experience with their military in the 1940s than the UK or the US does. Um, so there's always sort of this distrust towards militarism as well as towards the army in general that I think as well does play into this in many ways, for better or worse. Um, so it, the, there, there is a difference of culture that needs to be kept in mind for anybody who wants to get involved in this study, whether of, of battlefield tourism, visiting the sites, or of just French military history in general. Supporting what James just said, the only commemoration of the 22nd of August is actually French-led, is the one at Neufchâteau and Rossignol, and that's simply because it's done by the Troupe de Marine, the colonial corps, uh, successors, and it's done by their regimental association. It's not done by individuals, so on. it's done by the military sort of association. And what they do is they have the second weekend of September, and because Rossignol is only... 
40 minutes from Bazay, they do a joint weekend that's commemorate 1870 and 1914, the same weekend. So they go to Bazay and Neuchâtel and Rossignol. And that's the only commemoration that's French-led. And that's purely simply because it's a military regimental association, not by individuals or historians or anything like that. It's a military mm-hmm. association commemorating their forebears. Um, On the other hand, if you go to Arras around the anniversaries of various 15 battles, that's all run by the French. They they will walk up to the Notre Dame de la Lette. They have a torch-lit anniversary of... They, they, they choose particular days, uh, which will have a meaning to them. It's normally the 9th of May, the 15th, the second Artois. Uh, there are ones, but they are, as you said, Steve, they are locally led in some way. Um, I mean, strangely, at Lourdes, the, the most um, sort of vigorous memorial to a British <laughs> uh, battle at Lourdes from 1915 is led by the French. The French run that one. But it's all this locality. You're very much right there, Steve. I mean, I don't know whether I, I, I've held off because I know that I'm going to be, in a sense, continuing this with what my part was going to be. But uh, so I can I'll come in on that one now, which is the, the, whether the French were inferior. So it's the French did nothing or they were inferior. This basic negativity I'm carrying on from Christina, really, which I totally agree with her views of that. And I'm not surprised that she had those experiences when she first met British people coming out to Verdun or anywhere on the Western Front. And, and agree with Steve as well that. The the modern situation with regard to the French and so on is very much tourist-led. And if you're in the British sectors of Ypres or the Somme or so on, they have to see that the, their customers are, are British or Anglophilic anyway. My great gripe, more than anything else, is with historians, because all of that actually comes from the fact that a lot of historians in the 20s and 30s, and then much later building on those historians of the 20s and 30s, um, and especially the official history, perpetuate this myth that was basically created by British generals and British people. And it was created usually as some form of excuse or some form of, uh, in a sense, just basically putting the other side down. Now, that's not just a British thing. Uh, in 1415, the French were just as good as it. Uh, they complained about the British quite often. Um, but that didn't carry over. It was a complaint at the time. But what is really very annoying to me uh, is that after the war, Haig especially, mm. he wrote some of his diary or even didn't have to rewrite it because of the way it was put. And within that, there are outright lies the, the supposed telegram in 1918, where he was going to complain about Petain. Um, there are things which are changed. He alters things. He alters perspective, uh, usually to his own gain and his own, in a sense, feeling. Um, but it perpe- that was then held on to by Edmonds in the official history. He used the diaries a lot. Uh, he didn't have access to all what we now have access to, Edmonds. He had to he had to ask people a lot of the time because I've gone through a lot of the letters, which are the responses to Edmonds from various people, and we're talking now we're in the we're into the late twenties and we're into the thirties. He's writing to generals and various people who fought in the war. Uh, I've written this bit. Have a look through it and see what you think. 
So he gets feedback, and the feedback he gets is so similar to the sort of attitude that Rawlinson had and that Haig had. And it it's all it starts with French actually in 15 and 14 and 15. He is continually moaning about the French. Uh, he moans about them at Ypres, at first Ypres, even though they actually come and rescue the British um, in exactly the same way that Haig moans about them in 18 uh, when they come and rescue the British. Um, and I think historically and historiographically, one of the great problems we have is that very few people have fought against that tide the tide of the official history and so on. So whether you're reading it in the United States or whether you're reading it as an Anglophilic reader, you will read a perpetuation of many of these mm. fabrications and myths. And it builds up an idea that the French, almost from the outset, almost as if they, in, they lost so many in 14, it was never going to be again. Haig actually makes a statement in 15 that says, well, all the French army now are just old men, are older men, the young men have all been killed, uh, they're, they're basically not good anymore. He's already feeding that in, in his diary in 15, which, of course, he's then read afterwards by people after the war, as in, oh, the French were already going downhill, in 15. And it all perpetuates in that sort of way. And in 18, it's horrendous. And... There's a, there's a, I, I found it, because and I'll read it out, because it's an incredible statement um, that uh, Haig says at one particular point. Oh, sorry, this is Wilson saying, uh, and this is in 18. This is Wilson, so continuing the same sort of trend. The French are not fighting at all, and the Americans don't know how to. So it all falls to us. That's exactly the sort of image yeah. that I have. Um, and even the Americans are pushed down there. Um, but Haig also has a really nasty one where he basically says that from his statement in his diary is something like, I've got its quote here, but from March, from March the 21st until now, the French have done nothing. And he's talking in June. He's talking in after the, oh, the whole of the April move of something like 80 French divisions northwards to save the whole situation in the north. He, has, he makes that statement which then goes down in history, which then goes down in things that are read after the war. So my great gripe is with historians who haven't gone into enough detail and haven't looked at other sources um, that have allowed those myths to continue. You will read books even written today, which will have the meeting between Haig and Pétain um, shortly after the, 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 I think it's three, four days. I think it's four days after, I think it's March the 24th or 25th, I can't remember the day, exact date, where they meet and... Uh, Haig basically writes after the war that Pétain was anxious, um, disturbed, or whatever. And it's untrue, um, because there are two other people in the room. He forgets about that, who then write that that was not true, or it isn't true, and that in fact Pétain was calm and direct and told Haig that he had to hold his ground. And Haig didn't like that. Uh, so Haig made up a thing of that. Uh, and then the follow up to that was that, uh, and th this is later on in the sort of German offensive, is that he's, and this is what I alluded to earlier on, he talks about the fact that Pétain is retiring on Paris, he's not going to defend us, he's not trying to hold on to us, he's, he's not looking after himself. Uh, you've got, and he's saying, you've got to do something about it to the British government. I'm going to tell you, I telegrammed the British government. That telegram never existed, he never did it. There, there wasn't a telegram. It's a ghost. And we've only got 
lovely, as you somebody said earlier on, the loss of Elizabeth Greenlee. Her book is the only one that actually goes both sides of that, looks at the, some of the French foibles, but looks at the British myths as well. Uh, but unfortunately, her work is at a high brow level. It's not, out, it's not one that's, you, that's out there for everybody else to read. And the general uh, dialogue from what I would call popular historians now has to start removing those myths, has to start actually calling them out. And that's why that's what really uh, annoys me about it. And it, it colours all the things that, that and that's why you get the things that uh, Christina talked about with people coming out and thinking that it's because of what they've read, because they've read popular history of First World War. And that's full of those myths that come back right to the 20s and 30s. And the problem is, if, if they if they want to read something else, I mean, I found when you know guiding people and uh, British people coming out to the area, once they actually saw what had been happening there, they got interested in it, and they'd say, "Well, what can I read?" Well, in English, there's very little. You know, I mean, they'd say, "Well, there's my books. You know, there's there's the Price of Glory, and there's this, and there's that." But there really isn't much, and that's that's one of the problems. If you don't if you don't have an adequate knowledge of French. It's difficult to follow it up, particularly if you want to to use uh, if you want to go in the archives at all, or you know, I mean, you want to go on Memoir des Hommes and, and you can't read French reasonably well. It's very tricky. I mean, some people manage, to, you know, they're determined enough to do it, but it's also a question of it's a question of of um, of language ability, I think, and and I don't know how many uh, professional historians or popular historians have sufficient language ability i mean i i'm sure we all know from uh, from speaking speak well speaking french or i mean i mean i lived with french all the time uh, and i mean we spoke see we, my husband although he was danish in fact uh, grew up in france so culturally he was french and and uh, you know so we all spoke french so we were we were in french in france very often and and, and when you, I mean, Alex knows that when you live with a language, it's very different from from just having a bit of knowledge of it that you picked up at school or done at university or whatever, and it, and it opens doors that you don't have otherwise. And I think I think the language is a big problem for people who want to read about the French army in the war. And it's a bit easier to read about the German army in the war now, thanks to Jack Sheldon, because he's been writing such good stuff over the last few years. But there's nobody likes him, like him writing about the French army. It's not. It, it, it's not as you say. Elizabeth Greenhouse's stuff was terrific, but it's a. It's a high level. Uh, it's like Goya's book. You know, it's great stuff. But my goodness, it's it's a high level. You know, there's no there's no popular history uh, in English about the French army that's um, opening. You know, opening it up to new to to new students. And actually looking at the documents and not just repeating what other people have already written. Yeah, I think that's the crux. It's, it's, I mean, I I know that doing the Northern Guide to Arras, because it had all the Artois battles in, um, my French isn't particularly good. So it's taken a long time, a lot of effort. And I don't get much reward for that effort. You've got to be, you've got to be willing to do it, in a sense. And a popular historian who basically wants their next volume out within the next year, um, they're not going to put that sort of level of... Of, of work into it um and it's i don't know where that's going to come from where a, a good modern book on verdun or a good modern book on the the artois battles as a as a sort of set or 1915 as a year for example uh, i don't know where that's going to come from not from me 
Uh, Games, I'm, Alex, you guys doing anything with your free time? Like, <laughs> I'm trying to unpack boxes. Uh, <laughs> No, I think that's, you know, and I'm sure Alex can add on that. That is a, a drastically important point. It, it, I've had someone who I think you've talked to before, Mike, and if others haven't, check out uh, Dr. Richard Faulkner, Sean Faulkner's work on the American Expeditionary Force. Up until a few years ago, it was much the same, even though it's the exact same language. Language is not an issue. Um for studying the American Expeditionary Force, but people just weren't looking at the sources. Uh, they were just repeating the same stories. Oh, we want to hear a book about Sergeant York. We want to hear a book about the Lost Battalion and and versus actually looking at the everyday doughboy. Um, so it, it, you're, you're dead on. And and it, it's, it's interesting to me when it does appear in English, and I'd be interested in everyone's commentary on this, no matter if it's the First World War or any time period involving French history, um, and this is what motivated me to get into it. It's always the other. When it is translated, it's there to support an English language narrative that already exists, particularly, and this is starting to change, say, with the Napoleonic Wars of, well, they're written as we need someone to be the enemy for Wellington. Um, it, it, so we need one or two accounts of guys saying they were mown down by British volley fire at uh, Mont Saint-Jean, right? Um, and I, I think up until recently, that's really been the case. Uh, Three Armies of the Somme is one of the first ones uh, that I think has really started to challenge that. Uh, Bill Philpott's book on the Battle of the yes. Somme. Yep. Because that's from a very, as you've all said, very high level, very readable, amazing book, but very high level in that it really doesn't go down to the nitty gritty of unit movement, of social history. I mean, I think everybody here, if they had the time and ability to write a book, has a dream unit, a dream topic to write about. Much like Jim, I mean, I would love to do something in 1915 on the Moroccan division. Um, but it, it, it's it's interesting that it's always being done in this sort of supporting role of filling in the gaps to continue to tell the English-speaking story. The one possibility, I think, and it's one I'll, – I'll, I'll air it here because there are people here who might want to get involved in it, and there are others who may as well – is that in the same way that uh, Spencer Jones has done the – I'm not saying you do. We do a year. There's a year by year one, um, but Spencer Jones has just done a basically British Army in each of the years, 14, 15, 16. He's just done the 17 one. Yeah, and reading that, got, uh, reading that right now actually, which I got, highly recommend, except for one I mean, chapter on the Polygon Wood Battle. That's probably <laughs> the worst chapter in the book. But the problem there, for, yes, it, it, the, the the in a sense the idea around that is that it is a chapter for. for, for a person in other words there isn't one person who has to create the whole thing um and each of them is basically told by spencer you may be working that on your phd or whatever like a friend of mine is one of chapters i was glad you said that chapter because i thought don't say the chapter that my friend wrote otherwise i'm gonna be <laughs> um because a friend of mine wrote the one on set on on uh the the song to arras area um is that maybe a number of people can actually specialize on a chapter you know, it could have 15, could have a chapter on the Moroccan division. They did enough in 15 to fill a chapter. They did enough to fill two books. But for what we're doing, they could fill a chapter. And maybe that's something that we need to sell to somebody to say, we need to do the same with the French, with people who know what they're writing about, to get it out there through somewhere that people actually read something that says, oh, that's what happened with the French. Oh, that's what happened in 1915. Oh, that's what happened in 1918. The 18 one would be interesting. Um, mm-hmm. I should go backwards. We bring out the 18 one at the same time as Spencer Jones brings out the 18 one on the British. That would be good. 
I think. Yeah, the, I think. I think, think we're we'll Sorry, go on, Alex. You go. No, go ahead. I was going to say the big thing you've got to get the market right, though. You've got to yeah. get the marketing right because yeah. bringing these books out, who's going to, who's going to read them? Who's going to well, want who's, them? who's going to publish it too? You've, who's going to publish you've it? You've got too, to get a publisher interested. You're right. We, we missed the boat, unfortunately, um, because um, I know from one or two people who write that they have moved to the Second World War, basically, uh, because they said that the publishers aren't interested in First World War because the centenary is finished. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but so what I was going to say is that it's one of these where, with the French army and writing about anything French army related, of I mean, I'm I'm writing at the moment... <laughs> obviously around my great grandfather and bringing all of that together and bringing all those letters. So actually it is quite a unique element because it's something that's all written in French. So that actually will probably appear in English first before it even appears in French. So that's something which is pretty, pretty out there. Um, However, going through it and actually researching it gives you an idea of how, how much work there is to do because just looking at a regiment like the 315, going to the archives in uh, in Vincennes, you can do the you can do the basic bit of the archives, i.e., you go and look at the JMOs. The problem with the JMOs is they are littered with mistakes and also littered with gaps. Because what you don't see, I always look at the JMOs as the tip of the iceberg. Below that is the regimental boxes, and the regimental boxes are an absolute treasure trove. You've got basically bits of paper which are like, how do these pieces of paper survive? Like, there's one that I found which was uh, a piece of paper just saying, yep, we've arrived at this location, signed 1st of November 1916. And it's just a tiny little piece of paper. How that survived, who knows? But again, there's so much information, but additional information that you read in there that is then missed in the JMO. And that and there's so many things where the JMO can give you a positive slant on something when actually you then read, go through the regimental uh, documents and even eat battalion reviews from each battalion command. You're like, well, okay, these bits here, that's not in the JMO. So again, you have, and that's just looking at one regiment. So you can imagine when you then start compiling this at a larger scale, there's a lot to do. And again, you need to be able to read French. If you can't read French... Because as we said previously, there's French that we now know, i.e. modern day French, and French French back in the First World War in terms of terminology that are used, etc. Well, even for me, at times, it, 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 it's a bit of a struggle because you're trying to work out what's actually being, being said here. So, yes, something needs to be done about it. I mean, what I'm doing with my one is very much taking a viewpoint of going... I've read many French diaries and accounts and honestly, I find them all rather dry because all that they're doing is telling me what's going on each day and explain to me absolutely nothing of what half these letters or postcards or what these entries mean. I have no explanation. You talk about um, you've got a new gas mask. Okay. <laughs> maybe just a bit of narrative give me some narrative so it actually makes it accessible to people so that's what my view is is what, what i'm trying to do but again um it's going to take a long time there's a lot of research that needs to be done to do anything like that 
as you say, it's not literally I'm just going to go and write a book in a year and here's my next volume. Um, it, it, it needs a lot of work, but hopefully it makes it very accessible. All right. Awesome. Awesome. Steve, you uh, brought up here and boy, I, I think James might feel the same way. This feels really good to be able to say this. The British won the war. Um, and so the British <laughs> won the war with the 100 days or the superiority of the British regimental system. Am I, am I saying well, that correctly? The first one, because that follows a nice from what Jim and Christine have been saying. And also what Alex came on to, it's about hyper. It's great, a nice phrase, 100 days. Well, we've got that package off there, 100 days. Where does it start from? We count back from the end of the war. I think, oh, it's August. What happened in August? Oh, the British turned around and started fighting. But who published? It's a British history. It's British historians who are telling that. We've got this catchphrase, and now everyone goes along with it. If you're on the French side of things, it doesn't. The French side, I think, they tend to pick July the 18th. Mm. As the as a real turning point. I mean, Castle now, when he was at the unveiling of Foch's memorial of the Pyrenees, led a real long thing. And it was all about July the 18th. That was a big turning point in the First World War. And that, that's how the French portray it. But as we've already said, they don't get that message across, particularly to uh, an Anglophone audience. And all we, it, it's part to do with bigging Hague up. Yes, Hague was treated badly over the years, and we now repositioning with all the revisionist historians on. But it's not the be-all and end-all. It's a pretty average. Now there, the 100 days is not the way the, you know, we ought to be talking about Foch and, and Patan particularly. And going back to certain hours, say July the 18th, but it's not, you can't say, oh, the 100 27 days or whatever it is, I haven't worked it out, but it's not such a nice ring, nice ring to it. Uh, so that's that's my point in a, a nutshell. I'm sure James will come on and add on to that. Uh, Steve, just real quick, by, just in case any listeners don't know, the 18th of July, that was the Allied counterattack at the uh, Second Battle of the Marne. Exactly, yeah. Correct? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Yeah. So, and then, um, Steve, did you want to speak about the, the the superiority of the British regimental system? I well, I'll just come back on that. But perhaps James wants to come on with a so we can be more of a, a, a fluid discussion. I'm sure oh, sure, sure, sure. You got it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I won't I won't spill too many of the beans here before we get to to the American participation. Um, but I, you know, that this question of uh, one of the biggest annoyances. I mean, there's so many ones for all of us, I'm sure. Uh, and I just picked the one that I thought that I knew the most about and wouldn't step on anyone else's toes. And, but it, it is very interesting to me uh, that one thing, and this broadly covers all military history, not only the first world war, not only French military history, but this idea as well of the only thing that matters is the person there on the battlefield and whether they are pushing forward or falling back, so on and so forth. And I think one thing that the general public is slowly starting to realize, especially with the news coming out of Ukraine right now is as you're a veteran yourself, I think Mike, you know, uh, bullets, you know, supply makes bullets fly. And yes. in 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 this sense, the the French are the arsenal of democracy of the First World War. 
so understanding as well that very little of this is happening without French supply routes, even when we talk about the BEF and the amazing things that the BEF did legitimately do during the offensives which start around Amiens or even earlier and, and then go towards the armistice. I mean, French railway systems making that possible, you know, British uh, assistance on running those French railways, uh, you know, French support logistically pushing all of that forward and the ability to to play to the allies, which we'll get at uh, closer closer to, to my time. Uh, it, it is interesting, I think, in the many ways in which the French are are present fighting at battles and purposefully or, or knowingly are willing to let themselves be right out of the history to keep politics happy, to keep that logistic supply coming in, to keep those shipments coming in, to keep new soldiers coming in, to keep support of the war coming in as well, I think is something that's drastically understudied um, at any level um, and, and is also just fascinating as well. A lot of folks love to cite the uh, the width and the amount of the front and the amount of units that the Germans have opposing the British as compared to opposing the French. And they also love to comment on the slowness of the French, something the Americans do as well. But I, again, looking at just the cultures of command, the cultures of combat that you see in, in the second half of 1918, uh, as well as the casualties that are not being inflicted on the French that are being inflicted on the Germans, I think is also really interesting as well. Looking at some of these battles that the British are fighting during the Hundred Days, like Le, Le Quesnoy or any of these other battles where they're losing 50% of the strengths of certain battalions and then complaining, well, the French aren't fast enough. Uh, they're not losing the strength of 50% of their battalion strength. Um, so I, I think it, again, really the French Army in 1918, I think, is really fascinating. Um, I think that they're the the most capable army on the Western Front in 1918, um, and and it, it is something to be said about knowing who is what what sort of measure of success. What does your measure of success look like? Is it just in taking ground? Is it in inflicting casualties? Is it not suffering casualties? Because all of these nations that are fighting in the First World War and up to the modern day, they each have different goals. And it might not be suffering casualties. It might not be taking ground, inflicting casualties. So something to keep in the back of your mind when studying 1918 campaigns, especially as well, and, and trying to compare who outperforms one or the other. It's interesting. Um, your perspective, Christina, when, when you were speaking about bringing British visitors to Verdun and them saying like, oh, we would have, we would have cleaned this up in about three weeks. It's yeah. funny to watch to, to bring a modern battlefield. If you guys, I'm, I'm following as closely as I can, the, the battle around Bakhmut taking place in, mm -hmm. in Ukraine. I mean, that is like, like the, the Ukrainian Verdun right now. I don't know mm -hmm. if you guys like physically the, the places. Oh my God. It's, it's, it's a world war one battlefield happening. And, and basically that war is a highly modernized version of world war one right now. It's an artillery war. Um, but the struggles around Bakhmut, I wonder if anybody would say like, well, you know, like here's what you guys should be doing right now. And you'd be cleaning this place up in a second. Like, no, I, I think you had to be there at the time to really know what you're going on. And it's not always about gaining ground. I, I believe James mm -hmm. was mentioning that um, in 1918, the French were advancing much more, and I'm not, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seems much more cautiously, but much more skillfully, like protecting their men, advancing with, with proper artillery, 
support um, th- things of that nature so that they wouldn't um, outrun. Uh, I, I just want to throw one thing in and don't mean to interrupt, but I do think it's fascinating looking at military history more broadly. A lot of these complaints you get, um, no matter where they come from, about the French being too slow in 1918 are a lot of the people that say uh, 1944, uh, Monty and the British Army was doing everything just right, taking at their own pace. It's the Americans who are too fast. Um, uh, it's uh, I think it's, it's very interesting and gets into nationalistic discussions of history. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Uh, so... Uh, I'll leave it to you guys. Steve, any more that, that you wanted to, to speak of? All right. James, I think we, we've got you with the, the no, U.S. perspective. No, All right. And then, James, you're, you're, uh, you had here the U.S. perspective yeah. uh, on France. Yes, absolutely. And this this is this is we're going to focus in on the Great War as as is here. But I think this is something that's much more open for broader discussion. Uh, I think Alex has had shared with us an interesting uh, I forget who posted it this morning. Perfect commentary on the American opinion of France, very much shaped by the experience of 1940, as well as the experience of Vichy France. Um, but it is very important to note, and I love to tell this to any of my students, any folks who come to a historic site and we discuss French history before Churchill and Roosevelt and this idea of, uh, you know, the, the special relationship between uh, Britain and Canada and the United States. Uh, the U.S. really looked to France as their key ally. And, of course, there are points in history before, like the Quasi-War, the French intervention in Mexico, where that is really tested. Um, but um, – during the First World War, the U.S. very much views France as the traditional ally, and the U.S., when they deploy to Europe, is doing so very much as a uh, French – part of the French army. They are training mainly under French troops. It is not until the British actually step in to provide uh, transport to Europe that Americans are going to start training under the BEF, and most of them, with the exception of two divisions, uh, which I th- you think you've covered already in previous episodes, have, have are going to be transferred to fight in the French sector of the front. So it is a, a really interesting story uh, that I think more Americans should know, and I think more people who study political history or public relations should know, because in 1918, in the spring of 19, uh, excuse me, 1917, in the spring of 1917, not only are the British and French fighting uh, the Battle of Arras and the Chemin des Dames, they're fighting each other in Washington. And I think that's a really uh, interesting look at how the French view the United States and how the Americans view the French. The British send a delegation over after the U.S. declares war, as do the French. And the British sent uh, a general, some admirals, um, and they're basically going to put the, the party line forward of, hey, get your guys over. We'll, we'll throw them into British battalions. We'll fill up uh, our depleted ranks and then send them over. And the French say basically the same thing when they come over. Uh but they very quickly realize that that's not going to go anywhere. The Americans want to fight on uh, their their own front, and thankfully for the French, their le- their uh, their group is led by uh, Marshal Joffre, who's a household name in the United States already because of the First Battle of the Marne. And he very quickly realizes that not only does he need to talk to President Wilson and the and the chiefs of staff and all of the higher ups in the U.S. government, he goes on a speaking circuit around the United States talking to everyday people and really drumming up that support, saying, hey, you we helped you during your revolution. Now it's your turn to come over and help us uh, as well. 
by the time Americans do arrive in France, there are drastic issues with the relationship between the American soldiers and the British soldiers, not so much the French soldiers. As a polar opposite of what we're talking about today with the language issue and getting that across, that doesn't seem to be much of an issue. What is an issue is you have Americans who to this day are told that we're raised in the greatest country in the world because we've got democracy and you know uh, Big Macs and, and all of those cool things. But uh, the British soldiers are being told the same thing from birth: that hey, you're a product of the empire. You know, you're you're fighting for king and country, um, the oldest democracy uh, in Europe. Um, and when you've got two people who say I'm from the greatest country in the world, that tends to cause some issues. Uh, the French, Pétain, Foch, are really good about telling the French soldiers, hey, just smile and nod at these guys. We really need them. Um, and, and so the French really win that PR battle in the U.S. And so the Americans do truly look at the French as their ally. American units, when they arrive, know nothing, as we've talked about. And it's the French units, particularly the the French Chasseur Alpin, the 47th Division, who trained the 1st American Division, that become truly famous in the United States for, for assisting them, to the point that if you've got any basketball fans who listen, Duke University's Blue Devils are named after the French Chasseur mm -hmm. Alpin because they were sent on a PR marketing tour throughout the United States in 1918 to raise war bonds as well. You're so kidding. No, no. Yeah, wow. they're named after the Chasseur Alpin. Yeah. So um, – yeah, so there's a lot of really cool niche and weird uh, French history that you still see reminiscent here in the U.S. Um, those American units that don't follow Pershing's, uh, you know, by the book letter are really picking up French assault tactics. But you see that same complaint from the guys who don't listen to the French advice and uh, that the British have in 1918. Oh, they're too slow. You know, you know, they're not methodical enough. 79th Division of Montfaucon, really perfect example. Um, some of the units in the Second Battle of the Marne, the 32nd Division, my guys from Michigan and Wisconsin, um, they get just swamped on the 1st of August 1918 and complain about, well, the French units on our flanks didn't keep up. Well, yeah, there's a reason for that. They, you don't want to run against machine guns across an open field. They figured that out by now my guy um so it, it's it is it, there's this 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 process of understanding that the americans and the french are working more and more as the war goes on in tandem uh and then after the war growing farther and farther apart as the political aims of the french in the occupied rhineland and wilson's 14 points very much drift off um and so it is not all sunshine and roses, the relationship by any means, but it is probably the close real coalition war the U.S. has to fight. It's the first time Americans en masse had been sent overseas, and it is to this country that they've heard so many things about. One of the things that I'd be interested in, again, we keep talking back to potential units, potential battles to study. It seems to me that the French have a select group of units particularly divisions and corps that they love to pair with the Americans because they've got experience working alongside the Americans. 39th Division is a really good example. They're at the Second Battle of the Marne, fight at Hill 204, where the big American monument outside of Chateau Thierry now stands. They're actually the unit that takes Hill 204, um, and they've got some embedded members of the Pennsylvania National Guard with them when they do that. Um, they're also the unit that takes Maltsec. Uh, we see the Maltsec monument uh, for at the Saint-Mihiel battlefield, Big, cool monument, gorgeous view, um, taken by French troops, not by Americans, uh, on the 12th of September, 1918. It's just actually the 13th when the hill fell. 
Um, but the French are also willing to say, yeah, we're doing kind of the dirty work here, but we'll let these guys take the credit because we, again, we really need them. They know how to play this PR battle. Um, so I think that this is something that's really worth exploring more and more Americans should understand. We're not the leaders of the fight in the first world war, like we are in the second world war. Um, there's the Eisenhower of this generation is a Marshall Foch. Um, and it's, it is still in many places, a name you will see on, on street signs. Uh, there's an amazing historian, um, uh, uh, Devigny, who, uh, Deving, who is working, uh, at the, uh, Musée de l'Armée, uh, for the Liberation Center and one of the projects, uh, Deanne Devigmont, excuse me, is her name. Um, and, uh, she's documenting all the streets still named after Marshal Patin in the United States because there are some. Um, so it, it is, there is a lot of these interesting connections that continue to go on that are lost in 1940 that I think is very important for folks to understand. And for any student of American military history, you need to understand French military history. Not only the Americans operating like the French during the First World War, the Americans are operating like the French in almost all of their wars pre-1918. So whether that be the American Civil War, where they've got a direct translation of the Chasseur à Pied manual, um, and they're literally studying the battles that had taken months, if not years earlier, uh, under Napoleon III in Italy. Um, but they're operating like the French in the Continental Army. They're operating with, again, another direct translation in the War of 1812 from the Manual of 1791. So French and American military history is inevitably intertwined, uh, no more so than in the First World War when they are literally operating amongst each other. Um, and that's the real topic that I think Americans should have a better understanding for. Um I like to remind soldiers when, uh, whenever we're talking modern current soldiers, while we're talking about American military history, that the division patches you wear, the insignia you wear, the, the structure that you, uh, understand, you will have no understanding of what's going on in the Spanish American war, the American civil war. But the first world war, you finally get this idea of like, Oh, I'm in a squad with fire and maneuver elements. I have a division. We still have that big red one patch that was invented during 1917. That all comes from the French. That all comes from this establishment of, Hey guys, you shouldn't all carry rifles. Here's the show show, which by the way, I think is one of the best weapons of the first world war. And I know that will cause some controversy, but, um, Truly, it is down to that experience that the American military that you can trace from 1917 to today is very much based on that French experience of 1914 to 1917. So at the end, that's what I always try to drill home to uh, anybody who will listen to me, whether there's someone on the street waiting for a cup of coffee and I say, hey, do you want to know about the Second Battle of Artois? Like, Get out of my way. Um so <laughs> it's, you know, it, that, that is, I think, something that Americans really struggle with, understanding that we bring in a lot of different uh, topics to make ourselves who we are today, whether it be from military history to social history and uh, walking through our battlefields. I know you go on trips to the Meuse-Argonne, Saint-Michel, all those American fights. You really do need to look at the American Expeditionary Force as a part of Foch's as well as a Pétain's. Uh, general uh, battle conduct conduction of their battlefield, general ways in which they move their their men forward as part of this French army uh, on the Western Front is is how I would and have increasingly continued to describe the AEF in 1918. Wow! So I have to say, I like mm. I just learned so much in the last yeah. like five minutes. <laughs> Amazing! Wow. Um, 
Yeah. I, and if anybody needs any any citations or reading sources, one of the great things I love about doing these Zooms is I've got my Kindle app up in the background and I'm scrolling through being like, oh, yeah, make sure I mention that book. Half of yeah, them are Christina's books. So don't that's, you know. <laughs> yeah, if you can just just go ahead and just just email me a whole reading list of um, American and French military history <laughs> and, and what I need to know. Um, that's awesome. Um same as uh, in, in a similar vein, James, like just um, the other day at at uh, at my work, I was annoying my colleagues with like, oh, I'm taking another trip to France in the summer. <laughs> and I was talking I was, and I was bringing up the whole issue of the, you know, I said, you know, like, like, listen, like the French army started with red pants. They ended the war with blue pants. Yeah. It's huge. It's huge. And um, just one of my coworkers, she turned around and was like, I, I hate him. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I, I don't think she meant, it, but, uh, but no, that, that is, that's amazing. Like looking at, like, I didn't, I, I have certainly tried to talk about covering the, the Merzagon, how much, how much the, the AEF uh, w- was intertwined or, mm-hmm. or more allied with, with the French army than with the, with the British. And, um, but, but clearly there's, there's a whole lot more there. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would tell, you know, folks, I know, um, for very famous places that we tend to leave out the French story, perfect example is lost battalion. Um, they, they're, you know, the 77th division stuck in the Argonne forest. Um, we do definitely talk about the pressure that helps gets relieved on them when the 28th and the 82nd go up to Chateau Chehery, and then you have the famous Sergeant New York action. What we tend not to talk about is the reason the Germans pull out isn't just because they're being hit by the Americans on the side, but the French are also behind them. Um, and it's dismounted French cuirassiers um, that are uh, part of the second dismounted cavalry division that are about to encircle the Germans in the Argonne forest, which is why, why they end up pulling out. Looking at the blank malt monument, we love to talk about the Marines. I can't, I'm sorry to any Marine Corps listeners, but it's a little overhyped guys. Um, uh, it, you know, it, the, 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 the entire battle of blank malt is part of uh, general uh, Gouraud's overall offensive with the fourth army this is all part of a French battle and the Americans are just wheels in this cog. Um, yeah. Yep. Yep. And, and thanks for just setting my podcast on fire, by the way. Like, <laughs> Sorry. No. Uh, <laughs> you, you all know who you are and uh, I'll give you guys my mailing address too. <laughs> no, this is fantastic. This is fantastic. All right. So um, we'll go ahead and we'll move on to the second question and which leaves intact um one one small myth that clearly must be true because nobody here has addressed it is that uh i believe uh Guinemer in his last flight ascended directly to heaven since nobody here has argued the point it must therefore be true <laughs> all right so for question number two folks we're going to go to individuals uh related to the french military uh that people don't know but that they should so we'll we'll start off again with alex who has two gentlemen uh that he would like to talk about yeah i've gone with two i mean one of them i'd, I'd say is a bit facetious in that one of them is the soldier soldat inconnu, so the unknown soldier um as we said in terms of people we should know ironically it is somebody we really should know but because of the terrible 
uh, way that the war was fought, unfortunately, you have thousands and thousands who are just unknown. So that that was kind of one of them. And the story of the unknown soldier, the, the French unknown soldier is obviously quite interesting as well in that if people don't know, he's buried, that individual is buried under um, the Arc de Triomphe um, in, in Paris. Ironically, he was supposed to be going to the Pantheon, but that uh, that didn't that didn't happen. That got scrapped. And uh, the way they selected the unknown soldier was getting a body from eight different battlefields in the Western Front where the French had thought uh, had fought. Actually, it was supposed to be nine, but the ninth one was in a sector where they couldn't be sure that the individual was actually French. <laughs> so they decided, scrub that, we'll only go with eight. <laughs> um, and that's how they uh, that's how they went about it. And the whole process was done at the uh, Citadel de, de Verdun, um, where I believe, uh, what was his name? Auguste, Auguste Tain was the person who selected the individual, and it was the sixth coffin. Um, there's always... The story of why did he select the sixth coffin? And the story is, is because he was in the 132nd regiment and he said, I just added up all the numbers of my regiment and went for the sixth one. <laughs> so there, so that's how we that's how the uh, the unknown soldier became the unknown soldier. And there's actually quite an interesting film um called La Vie et Rien d'autre, uh, which is a Philippe Noir film, which is around the whole unknown soldier, but also around um, just identifying lost soldiers, unknown, disparity as well, which came out in, uh, I think it was 18, uh, 1989. Yes. Um, yep. That's a good, good film too. That's, yeah. that was really interesting. It's just come out recently on Blu-ray. So it's actually now been restored. So it's actually, uh, it's really high definition. So people with their massive wide screens in the US can actually watch it. <laughs> um and my second one i was going to go for and again i've gone for kind of an individual that people don't know i think a lot of people probably know this individual but i would probably argue that he should be better known um than what he is which is the castellano so eduardo castellano um again if people don't know um the castellano well let me tell you let me tell you all about him and why um, people should know more about him. I mean, the big thing with the Castelnau is if you just kind of type his name into Google, often what you'll see come up next to his name is kind of the forgotten man of Verdun or the most accomplished officer of his gen- generation. So that's kind of that's kind of a big accolade um, to have next to your name. But for some reason, he kind of gets forgotten. I always think he gets forgotten because he had so much less influence at the end. So he wasn't part of the end game, like others who were part of the end game, because he was he was around, but had far less influence. And because of that, he doesn't have the position like your, your Foshes, etc. But another big element as well, obviously counts against the Castellan again, is something that we talked about uh, earlier around well, you have to think about things as being French in terms of how the French look at things. Well, you've got to remember in France, everything, a lot of it, well, the two most important things are kind of what your political views are and religion. Massive. And someone like the Castellan, that was going to ultimately always play against him. 
um, especially when you're in a republic and the individual has, let's say, royalist type types of tendencies. So that's never going to play, never going to play to your to your advantage. But as an individual, I mean, he's overlooked in some of the st- things that he did. I mean, in 1914, there's two kind of very critical things. You've got, for example, his victory at the Troy uh, de, de Chaume, the 26th, 24th, 27th of uh, August 1914, where a lot of people would argue that without that happening, Second Marne probably wouldn't have been um, as successful. You've also got November 1914 with Kesno, where he effectively used a rolling barrage uh, for one of the first uses of the rolling barrage being um, ultimately used. And then, so that's just 1914. Then ultimately, you look at the 1916 and some of just just three parts, three important things within 1916. One of the most important dates you can probably argue is the 23rd of January, 1916, when he turns up in Verdun and goes, guys, we need to sort these defences out because they're not up to scratch. He he initiates that work to get done. Also in the battle, ironically, we're recording this on the 19th, only a couple of days time you, you'd have the, the, the Battle of Verdun starting. But when the Battle of Verdun does start, who is it <clears throat> that actually advises Joffre that he needs to go and change command? Who does he need to go and put in place? It's the Castelnau that goes, you know who the best person's going to be? It's going to be Pitain. It's not Joff. Joff obviously ultimately makes the decision in terms of okays it, but it is de Castelnau that does the the work in regards to saying he is going to be the man. He is the person that you need to appoint. And then at the end as well, in uh, ninety, in at the end in terms of in November nineteen sixteen, and into December, de Castelnau ignores multiple times Joff's uh, Joff's quest to kind of let right let's just close off there down let's stop it um de castelnau ignores it and lets nivelle manger carry on with their attacks to regain um more land um so again as an individual this is it's pretty pretty kind of glowing cv but again because he has an association with joff when joff's star obviously starts to uh, starts to fade well, ultimately, the Castelnau fades fades as well into um, into the background. So, also, and we mentioned it earlier in terms of the likes of Haig. Oh, I I dare say that Haig was a, quite an admirer <laughs> of uh, of the Castelnau. There's actually uh, quite a few references where he's he's very complimentary um, about, about the Castelnau. But for example, the AEF are very complimentary. Um, about uh, de Castelnau. So amongst the Allies, there's, there's, he, he's got a great reputation. Unfortunately, post-war, you've got Joff, you've got, uh, you've got uh, Foch. They all put the boot into, into de Castelnau, um, calling him far too conservative, etc. And that kind of, let's say, kills off his, his, his reputation in that sense. But there was a big clamour literally at the end of the war that he should be um one of the one of the maréchal de france he never became a maréchal de france the reality is he probably should have um become a, a maréchal de france 
And you've got even people like Clemenceau, who was saying, well, it's a bit bizarre. He's not become a Maréchal de France. Well, <laughs> it's, yeah, there, there you go. I mean, it, it's ironic coming from such an individual. And again, I don't know what people on here think, but I feel he's one of these people who should be, he's obviously known, but he should probably be better known for what he's done. Yeah, when he was well, first, I'd agree, Alex, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with you. And the it's interesting that when I was looking into it myself at some point, I noticed that he had actually been put on the list uh, for to be given his battle. Off. And at some and there's there's it's really hard to find out who was behind him being taken off. But it looks as if it was on a political level, yeah, not yes. yeah. although it was, although it, yeah, I don't uh, it wasn't really fully supported by Fosh and so on. Uh, it does seem to have been that decision somewhere along the uh, the political lines, and I think probably more than anything else because he did have, he was the one of the he would have been the only aristocratic baton holder mm. from the oh, out of the public, um, and that that I think was going to be the sticking in the craw of a number of politicians, uh, especially the very republican politicians, and I, I sort of put Clemenceau maybe within those in terms of he might have said that publicly why isn't he but he might have been privately he was one of the party that was saying no we're going to get because I think Clemenceau would have if it was up to him he, he would have got one and I think if Clemenceau would have wanted it he'd have got one exactly yeah. so I think in the end uh, yeah politics did it and that was the first round the second round of marshals it wasn't even later on when no, he was, they got them it wasn't even the list but the, the first time it was as Jim says it primarily political because he was so popular yeah, yeah. a big following through from his Catholic background and the political party he even formed or was or was leading almost and to be to, to make him marshal of the it would have given him so much a boost to his campaigning that the, the politicians were scared not so much for the fact of his uh, monarchist tendencies, because the very little evidence of that being displayed. It's more the fact that it was so popular, it was threatening the politicians of perhaps uh, when it running for office and becoming a political force in his own right. Not so much for uh, Osh and Joff were saying about it. It's primarily the politicians that had it in for. Yeah, I think it was a fear of a aristocratic Catholic um, powerhouse. Fear the fear of that just hit the Third Republic so hard that they just thought we can't have this. It's a big shame. I agree, Alex. Big shame. All right. Interesting. Interesting. All right. Steve, the person you mentioned, Cordonnier, am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah, uh, yeah, basically, it means uh, bootmaker or cobbler. But uh, what uh, Victor Cordonnier was. He was just a general brigade to start with at the outset, but he's one of the few French commanders uh, in, the, in August 14 who used initiative on more than one occasion. Uh, firstly, he's the first commander of a unit to receive the uh, citation of the Order of the Army for his action at the first battle fought on French soil, Battle of Montjean, on the 10th of August, uh, 1914. He wasn't initially involved. Basically, the it was a... 7th Division battle, really, or units of the 7th Division battle. The 14th Hussars discovered a mass of German cavalry advancing westwards. They totally, uh, the division at quarter of the 130th Regiment, sort of uh, intercept the cavalry. Uh, and to go a long story short, they basically attacked 
the cavalry without artillery support. So, and as with the result you would expect, the cavalry just dismounted, loaded up the machine guns, brought up their artillery, and the 130th uh, Regiment suffered very badly. Uh, the 87th Brigade, which Cordonnier commanded, and uh, mobilisation, their garrison further north at Stenay. Uh, Montjean, for those that don't know, is between, just a bit to the east between Verdun and Stenay. And um, basically, it's a question of riding towards the sun. They knew something was going on. Uh, immediately, without waiting for orders from uh, superiors to him, uh, sent both his infantry and, more importantly, his supporting artillery uh, to intervene the battery. And they sort of turned the tide, sort of saved the French. Uh, uh, I mean, the French knew it was a victory because uh, they were in possession of the battlefield afterwards, but it wasn't. The, uh, the 130th Regiment suffered horrendous cavalry uh, and horrendous casualties, and the French ca uh, German cavalry just retired. Secondly, uh, 22nd of August, uh, the advance of the Second Corps, because that's what uh, Body's unit was part of, they were supposed to task with uh, reaching uh, Tintiny. Uh, the night before, they were going to cross the, the River Ton by or River Ver, by the bridge at Vellon. Unfortunately, it was allocated to a, a corps on the other. They were in the they were most of the eastern flank of the uh, Fourth Army. Uh, unfortunately, that bridge was uh, allocated to the corps on the westernmost flank of Third uh, Army. So they had to make a big deviation around Montmartre, then back around to the side of the river, back over the hills, etc. It was about a 50-mile diversion. Oh, wow. The column then got, they were sort of in the, in the main body of the column. The avant-garde and the main body then got embroiled in the battle of the left-hand corps of the uh, Third Army at, Vert uh, at Verton on the heights of Houdrini, uh, north of Verton, Bellevue. They were behind schedule, but what coordinated, he took his brigade and instead of falling on the line, he took a different route through the forest and managed to get just in front of them, in, in effect became the avant-garde, uh, and continued marching on. As it was, he didn't get to Tintiny, which is a big mistake and the defeat of the colonial corps is often attributed uh, partly to that. But he held Bellefontaine. Uh, he also held it through the course of the day and through the night, which helped the colonial corps or the remnants of the colonial corps when they retreated from their, their defeat at, at Rossignol. So two unusual uh, instances of initiative being used by French commanders early in August because there weren't many. Uh, so that's what uh, I like about Cordonnier. He, uh, he waited to under command a division and he was sent out under Sarre's command uh, in, out in uh, Salonica uh, over there. And I'm sure James is going to maybe talk on that when he comes on to talk about Sarre uh, uh, later on. So that was the first guy. The second guy was just Pierre Roth. Now, he's sort of symptomatic of how the French military political relationship is sort of set out because he was more of a politician than a, than a general. Uh, he got his general, he became general brigade because he was a director of the engineering department, the war department. Prior to that, uh, he'd work, he'd worked uh, under Joff as an engineer in Madagascar. He built most of the roads in Madagascar because the latter part of the 19th century, a French military engineer was more of an engineer than a military person. They built the infrastructure through the empire, throughout the empire. That's what they'd do. Joff 
at least had some military experience. Rock had none whatsoever. Uh, however, what he did do, uh, he was the director of engineers at the, at the war ministry, and he won the battle for the control of the fle uh, fledging air force. Now, that in itself was a bit of a disaster because the competing department was the Department of Artillery, the, sorry, Director of Artillery. Who knows what would have happened if from 1912 onwards the, uh, the Air Force had been under the control of the Ar Artillery when things about spotting, observations, things like that. As it was, it was all done through the Director of Engineering. So that's why the early pilots were called, if you look on the memo, engineers, uh, he was also responsible for some of the uh, nomenclature. Uh, he chose uh, Avion. Uh, up until we called Avion, they're all called aeroplanes, like the Anglophone sort of word, but he didn't quite like that. Uh, and one of the designs at one of the uh, air shows uh, was called an Avion. He thought, oh, that sounds good. We'll call it Avion. Uh, and that's what it is. But the reason why I don't particularly like uh, Rock is. Uh, is a bit of a scheming politician in a military uniform. Uh, during the Battle of the Frontiers, the only real opportunity the French had of perhaps doing some real damage to Germany was the 12th Corps front. He was, prior to taking command of a military unit, the most command experience had was 35 engineers in Madagascar. He had no real command experience of com uh, combined war arms, anything like that. But he was given command of the 12th Corps. Now, 12th Corps, and their advance to the right, to the right, they had the 5th Brigade of the Colonial Corps. Uh, so they advanced forward. The, as you know, the Colonial Corps got into difficulties, met stiff resistance and got into difficulties. In front of his corps of two divisions was just a brigade of German reserve troops. So German reserve troops didn't have the full complement of supporting artillery or machine guns. Rock had everything at his disposal, plus he'd also been issued with the Army uh, detachment of heavy Rimalio 155 mo uh, mobile artillery as well. And basically, they just stuck on the hill and didn't advance. The only thing that was in their favour is they suffered least casualties at any French unit on that day, primarily because they didn't advance. Uh, and in front of them was just a brigade. If they got through that brigade, in front of them, all they would see would be uh, Württemberg's Duke of Wurttemberg's uh, headquarters on the road between Neufchard and Bastogne. So it could really disrupted uh, the German advance across of uh, that German army. Now, it also would have helped the 5th Brigade of the Colonial Corps to their right, which that would relieve the pressure on them, uh, and it, the whole situation may have changed. It was a major joffs because he served under him. He suffered no sanction at all for it, and later on was given command of an army and ultimately became war minister. Uh, and when he was war minister, he then got, helped combine to get rid of, uh, campaign to get rid of Joffre, who'd saved his skin earlier in the day. He uh, was sent out to report by uh, Riant on Saray crossing, crossing Slanica, thinking they would come back saying, no, he's not doing a very good job, let's get, help get rid of him. But he came back and said, oh, no, I recommend we strengthen the position out there, uh, really, uh, there. Uh, and it helped undermine Joff's position, one of the things that led to uh, Joff's downfall. As it happened, Brian then won another election uh, and then replaced him Malayote. So it didn't quite work out in the end from any... any that's the last real sort of effective uh, participation he played in the First World War. Uh, but he, 
typical of the, the sort of French military political intertwined relationships, who's primarily an engineer, secondly, a politician, last of all, long way down the list was a military general. Wow. Wow. Thank you for that. Thank you. Jim, you, he is not a soldier. Uh, Raymond Poincaré, why should we know about him? uh, I'm following on something that James said really earlier on about the fact that we can concentrate on everything that's happening at the front, um, but sometimes what's happening uh, much further back, he was talking about logistics, which is a massive thing. Uh, A friend of mine, Rob Thompson, would would drone on for about three hours for you on. Um, But you've also got to remember that the war is a much bigger thing than all of the men included in as well. And unless you look at uh, Poincaré especially and around him the Third Republic, then you start to not know why certain things went the way they did in the First World War. And that's a lot to do with the fact that the French actually did hold it together. Um, And what you have to take into account is that the Third Republic was a very fragile beast. Uh, It had gone through a number of different um, crises since it's uh, it's sort of evolving in the early 1870s after the uh, German-French War. Uh, I don't like uh, Franco-Prussian War. It's a German war. <laughs> um, so up and down, uh, uh, all that period of time, from 1870 basically all the way through to the early 1900s, it had gone through a number of different crises. It was not in those days between 1900 and 1914, it was not a stable regime that felt confident that it could survive. When you talk about people like generals not getting battles because of their Catholicism, because of their aristocratic background, it's all linked to this fragility of of that um, republic. And in fact, that fragility, in some respects, uh, eventually leads all the way through to 1940. But in 19, early, the the sort of 1912-13, the republic has a prime minister, and it's Poincaré. He's the prime minister in 12. Uh, but he stands as president in 1912. And he's been, as prime minister, he's also been foreign... The, the prime minister at the time was also foreign minister. There wasn't two roles. He took the foreign minister role. So he'd been massively involved in building up all of the relationships with Russia. He visited Britain. He'd also visited Germany. He, he's sometimes seen as a as a warmonger or somebody who allowed the war to happen. He, if you look at his travels and his attempts at talking to different people in that early stage as prime minister and foreign minister, he's actually trying to do something different. He's trying to ease everything, but then he realizes it's not going to happen. So when he becomes president in thirteen, he actually has a prime minister who's understanding because they, the, the way that it would work, uh, there has to be elections then to the prime minister, that would take some time. Uh, so there's a stand-in prime minister for a while before Briar eventually becomes takes on his first premiership. Um, and in that period of time, he's in a way president and prime minister. And that's 13. So in 1913, he's very powerful in that role. Now, the other side of this is to do with him as, his, as president, because you would think in the French Republic style of the te- of the day, that he had no power. And that was a little bit of a misnomer at the time, because from 1877, there'd been a little bit of a tendency for the president to not use any powers. And that was because 
um, of a particular happening in, 19, in, in 1877 when the particular president at the time, Malmaison, uh, tried to basically create a coup. And they were very panicky about that idea, that if the president had too much power, because at that point the president could dissolve parliament, uh, he could basically rule. And uh, they were worried about that. So that power, but it was still there. It had just not been used. So Poincaré came in knowing that he got this possibility of being quite powerful. Um, but he actually saw that his role wasn't that. It wasn't to be overpowerful. It was to bring people together. He was already doing that as prime minister. His biggest role in prime, as prime minister was to bring people together. After all of the various problems that they'd had, all sorts of, uh, and the, the relationship between the public and the military uh, had been destroyed by the Dreyfus affair. Uh, the whole idea of anti-Catholicism, uh, anti-Semitism had driven whole um, holes through the French society. He felt he was going to bring everybody back together again. In the middle of all of that, then becomes the war. In other words, the, the, uh, he finds himself in that position that in his almost first year as president, uh, they're going to war. Now, he has learned a le a lessons from the past and from history in that he's very careful in not allowing uh, the sort of diehards to say, we declare war. No, he, he tried not to declare war as, as long as possible until it was inevitable he had to. And he had to because of the agreements he'd had with Russia. So when Russia declared war, he had no choice. They made that decision. And it was him, it was his, his particular situation where he said, no, we have to now go to war. His role then throughout the war, because he was president, uh, because the presidency is always seven years at that time. So he was going to be 13 until 20. So he's going to be president for all that time, unless he resigned. And he saw his role as one of unity. I have got to bring unity. And right at the beginning of this podcast, uh, Alex brought up the idea of the Uno uh, Sacre, the sacred union, the idea of a one nation. And his address to the deputies on the outbreak of war was all about that. That's where that phrase comes from. He uses it in that speech. And his whole demeanour is one of, look, guys, you might have incredibly different, different views from the right wing through to the socialists, through to the communists, uh, from royalists, or not so many royalists anymore, but all sorts of aspects of how the republic could work. But in this particular situation, we cannot have let that get in the way. And although the prime minister's changed over the next four years, he was a stable position, a stable person there. He would call meetings. He would have meetings of his uh, political leaders. He would pull the military leaders in. I'm not saying he was faultless because he made mistakes. Uh, in 17, for example, he could have put his foot down and Nivelle would have gone. And in fact, the, the offensive might not have even happened because he could have, when Nivelle offered his resignation and the offensive could have stopped, Poincaré could have actually said, I think that's what should happen. I think it would have happened. He was not always strong enough, but that's to do with him not wanting to inflict that power that he could have had too much. And I think sometimes he stepped back, and that was one occasion where he stepped back. But the rest of the time, all the way through to, in a way, until Clemenceau became prime minister, because uh, Clemenceau and, and Poincaré were, were opposite poles. Uh, they did not like each other. Uh, Clemenceau fought very hard for Poincaré not to be elected president. Uh, he, he even brought in things like his wife was a uh, was a divorcee, 
and therefore they they only had a they didn't have a church marriage all of that sort of thing they used almost the dirt that's used in modern politics they were using against Franklin um and he was also linked to the idea of possibly being a, a right-wing royalist-type character. Uh, I'm not going to that much in details there, but he, we, he withstood that, became president, and I think his stability in those early years of the French participation in the Great War were crucial in the fact that he created this working together and the nation saw that. He brought the nation together. And only really at the end of 17 and into 18 did that break apart quite a bit. Um, but by that time, they got through what could be called the biggest French crisis. Because 14 or 15 is a, cri- a French crisis. Uh, they quite easily could have, at the end of 15, despite saying that they wouldn't make a separate peace, they could quite easily have collapsed politically and just said to Germany, OK, OK, we've lost. We're not going to win this one. What should we do? Let's sort this out. Uh, and they'd have been embarrassed again. But he did, he would not have allowed that to happen, whatever the rest of the politicians he saw the role of France of winning this war uh, one way or another. We've got to stay together to do it. So for me, he is somebody who is not ignored because people don't like to talk about the politics sometimes in the Great War. Um, but as James said earlier on, there's a lot of things outside the what happens at the front that can make a, make a massive difference, whether it's the logistics or the politics and uh, the economics. Um, and he's that character who I think is not talked about enough for the Great War. My God! Wow, fascinating. Thank you, <clears throat> thank you. A whole whole other aspect, um, and whole other area uh, for for folks to to study. All right, moving on, James, your your person that people should know. Yeah, so I uh, my thunder was staking a little bit here because I thought I was going to be the edgy guy to talk about French politics, but uh, no, we've got we got right into it, and uh, I picked General Maurice Sarre, and I actually still am enjoying that I picked General Sarre because uh, it's a complete counterpoint to Alex and de Castelnau. Um, he, uh, unlike de Castelnau, who, as Alex mentioned, is leans to the right, uh, both in his Catholicism as well as in his politics, is uh, the polar opposite of General Sarre, who is a socialist. He comes from the left. He comes from uh, the southwest of France. And I think what the story of General Sarre highlights and what I wanted to talk about uh, is twofold. First off, playing that, that politics of the French army and being able to understand what the French army political sphere is like going into 1914, that really helps you see why certain generals are promoted, why some aren't followed, uh, why some get uh, more support than others. So Saray is a, a, fotogy, a protege of General Joff, who also tends to be center right leaning he he Joff does a very good job of not openly expressing his politics too much before uh before the war starts whereas Sarates is known to be on the left and because of that uh he sees rapid promotion he's accused by uh the right wing of French politics is only getting promoted quickly because he is a member of left wing politics, especially in these years when the French army and the French people, the French state are recovering from the Dreyfus affair. Uh, he, he is seen as one of those people who will uh, restore faith in the army uh, and reconnect it with the Republic. He, he's a true Republican in, in many of those senses. You start to see this change uh, in the relationship between uh, Surrey as well as the officers uh, who are commanding the French army 
basically as soon as he comes in contact with high command, uh, he uh, ends up being in command of the third army after performing pretty well in 1914. And he's relieved of that command in the summer of 1915 after uh, the German offensive in the Argonne region. Uh, the accusation is kind of that uh, the other generals in the area said, get him out of here, He, you know, because of his politics. Um, he eventually uh, gets sent to the east in command of the Army Française d'Orient, the, the French forces that serve in Salonika, uh, where he is eventually going to be relieved from that as well. And, and then now ser- then serves... Uh, when the French left wing comes back into power uh, with the French forces uh, occupying Syria and the Levant after the First World War. So really the story that I would highlight with Saray is, it's, again, it plays into that polar opposite, that the ways in which the pre-war politics, the ways in which all of these officers involve themselves in the politics of the French Republic, uh, no matter what side they're on, direct the war for France, direct the the way in which the war is conducted based on political needs, as all generals of all time periods have had to reckon with, but showing how that there was no one unified idea of how France should go forward of the French state. There was no one unified idea of French people. We know that uh, forces like Foch or Serey were from the southwest of France, from uh, the Pyrenees Atlantique region. Um, generally are are frowned upon by those officers who are Parisian. Uh, and it's only until they get up to higher rank that they get some of the same respect. So understanding the divisive nature of French politics, the, how that carries over into French leadership, both political and military, uh, really also highlights for us that there's no one general idea of France or Frenchness uh, during this time period. Um, and completely different as well from what we have today. So that I highly encourage. Uh, there's an amazing biography of General Saray by a gentleman named Tannenbaum that was published in the 1970s in English, uh, and you should definitely go check it out. Awesome! Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. That's that's fantastic. And I, I didn't realize that um, on the eve of World War One, that 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 idea of French nationalism, that idea of Frenchness, wasn't as solidified um, as, as I thought. If you see it, uh, you see it highlighted there uh, again, I'm going to throw out some other names who aren't on here because there's some great folks working on this. Erwin uh, Legal, who looks at the 47th mm-hmm. Infantry Regiment, which are Bretons, looking at the Breton nature of the war. Um, as I mentioned earlier, when we were talking about the mutinies, I love looking at the DZVTM, the, the 18th Infantry. They're from Pau in the southwest of France and going through their regimental newspaper, going through letters. It's not all in French. Some of it's in Ossetian, some of it's in Basque. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, they're from very close to the same region that uh, Louis Barta is from. So you get uh, a lot of the same sort of political leaning mixed with the fact that you have some far right people that would directly oppose a lot of what Barta is writing um, coming from that region because there's still a very strong Catholic presence. Um, so, yeah, again, this idea of Frenchness, uh, this idea of you might be a French soldier, but understanding he's a Burgundian, understanding he's from the Midi, understanding uh, he's a Norman or a Breton, I think also very much plays into how the French soldiers especially view themselves. And once these regimental identities start to break down and the regionality of the unit starts to be lost as reinforcements come in for, from anywhere, um, 
you do also start to see out of that developing the modern idea of a, a general Frenchness, which uh, that the French government has really been been pushing for decades. So, wow, awesome! That's that's fascinating. Thank you for for sharing that, Christina. I think we're we're coming down a bit in in ranks now. We've been talking generals and and presidents, and now we're going to talk about a. Um, if you'll allow me, a Capitaine Dumont. Uh, well, a, a, a captain who became a general. Ah. Um, he, he was a captain in the First World War. Uh, when I was thinking when Jim was talking about going back from the front uh, to, to what's happening, you know, the war isn't just what's happening at the front, it's also what's happening further back. Well, what Dumont did, Dumont was responsible for the mechanization and motorization of the army, of the French army, which is quite extraordinary when you consider that in 1913 he was a captain. Um, he got interested in uh, in automobiles, uh, I mean, as, as people were, um, and the, the, the first use of automobiles in the French army was actually in 1907. And there was obviously, you know, it, it had possibilities, but there were hardly any of them. In 1913, he was given he was he was given charge of the Service des Automobiles des Armées, so the the Army Automobile Service. And in 1914, there were 200 trucks. And but what they what they had in France was the right to expropriate every motorized vehicle in France because when you bought one, uh, you had to register it, and the and the state was allowed to take it if it needed it. So. Uh, trucks or tractors or trailers or motorbikes or motorcyclette or anything could be taken by the state. And so the state took them. Um, and uh, he built it up from there. Uh, it was obvious to him and to a certain number of other officers that, that they were going to need motor transport and they couldn't do everything by rail. Uh, and that in many ways, roads were, motor transport was more flexible. Um, and uh, it just went on from there. I mean, the, the famous example, of course, that everybody knows is the taxes of the Marne. Well, the taxes of the Marne, in fact, uh, only carried about 4,000 men of the 6th Army over a distance of about 50 kilometres, and that was all. But the PR value of it was absolutely enormous. And it, 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 he got the idea. I mean, you know, for most people, automobiles were, were something that, that other people had, but they didn't have them themselves. But but with the the idea of the taxes of the man, suddenly public opinion became very interested in that, and and it, it therefore it made it much easier for the army to say we need trucks, we need more trucks, and we need even more trucks, and to get truck production going very fast. Uh, he was responsible for all that. He was a young man. Um, he became of absolutely overwhelming importance. And uh, he is the man behind the organization of the, the, the what they call the Sacred Way in, in uh, Verdun, which is the, the, the main supply line from Bar-le-Duc to Verdun. He was responsible for calling the, the officers together to, to talk about what they were going to do two days before the Germans attacked. And he was so important that he, had, uh, he could phone General Pétain directly. He didn't have to go through anybody else. He could just get to him straight away. Um, because he he was the man who guaranteed that the road would run, and it did. He went on uh, in stayed with automobiles and motorization mechanization. At the end of the war, uh, France had over a hundred thousand trucks, so they started off with two hundred. And he's the man behind all that. 
he went on through the war, served to the end of the Second World War and beyond, ended up a general. Um, he's a man absolutely nobody knows anything about, really. Um, he's, he has, oh, that's my light just gone on. Hang on, I'm going to put another light on. <laughs> sure thing, no worries. There we go. <laughs> um, I forgot that one was on a timer. Um, <laughs> oh, I can't remember what I was saying now. Sorry. <laughs> Um, he became a general. Um, he, he end, yeah, he, he he ended up a general. He is, uh, if you go to Verdun and you you go to visit, um, you go down the Voie Sacrée to the where the memorial is. Uh, and when you turn into the parking space there, that 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 space is now called the Quartier du Mont, and there's a permanent exhibition there which talks about him a little bit. But that's all. But I mean, he's but he is absolutely unknown. And I mean, the idea of the motorization of the French army, you were talking about it in the last podcast, uh, again, is is pretty much unknown. The idea that, that the French army was the most motorized by the end of the war is something people certainly don't know. And, and this this chap is is behind it. And he's nobody's. I think there is no autobiography of him. I, I have one book on him. Uh, by a chap called Remy Porte, who's who's quite magnificent, um, but I think it's the it's the only one I think, and it's um, it's a dense read. Um, it's not something you'd read on the beach by any means, um, but he's he's a man who is absolutely unknown, and I, I think the the whole history of the mechanization of the army is quite extraordinary, and it's you you cannot. You, you know, we're, it's very easy when you read military history to to look at what's going on in the front. And and that's the exciting part. But they can't do it if you don't supply it. And and he's responsible for the supply. And it's not just for Dunn. He was responsible throughout in, in Champagne 1915 as well. And then in uh, 17 and 18, it's quite extraordinary. And, and he is just unknown. So I, I thought, you know, when you said, <laughs> who should people know who they don't know? I mean... I mean, you know, the generals, but but why particularly this general rather than that general? You know, one might have a preference for 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 you know Mangin rather than de Castelnau or somebody like that. But um, but but Dumont, without you take Dumont out of it and the motorization of the armies, they can't fight. So that's the, I I would go for him. Excellent, it's fantastic. That's fantastic. Thank you. That that's a. Um... Well, so I, I, add to that one, Christina, because it's not just the the, the logistics with the lorry, the, the sort of motorization part, the motorized heavy artillery, the fact that yes. the French were probably the only force on the Western Front at the end of the war that could move a large amount of its heavy artillery quickly from one front to another, exactly what Foch was wanting. Yes. Um, you know, Haig had to basically make do with whatever heavy artillery he had for each of the different parts of his campaign, therefore split it up. Whereas uh, Pétain could basically move his heavy artillery from one place to another because of all that motorization. They they were doing it in 1914. They only had the one heavy artillery regiment. But even so, uh, they were moving heavy artillery on roads in, in 1914, right at the beginning of the war. It's extraordinary. And Jim, uh, I believe last episode you you mentioned was was it not like the French army? They were the most mechanized uh, military in the world by the end of, of World War One. Oh, definitely. I mean, they, in terms of in terms of they may have been a little bit following the British in terms of tanks and so on, in terms of what they what they got. But the moment they saw 
that what they, in some respects, they, they tried to copy what the British were doing in a, in a heavy tank form. They weren't particularly successful. But instead of sort of saying, well, these are not working, uh, which is basically what the Germans were sort of saying, um, they said, well, we need something a bit easier than this. We need something smaller and faster and more maneuverable. And the, the Renault comes out of it and they have sort of thousands of them by the end. And they're becoming very, they're, they're very useful. No, they're incredibly useful because on that battlefield, you just needed mechanized, some form of mechanized mm. ability. Um, but certainly, the the mechanized, it, it, it's. We talk about the fact that um, the whole idea of the combined arms was very much the thing in 1918, and it's nearly always by Anglo-Felix put to the British. That oh, we we invented combined arms oh, no. um, by the end of the war. Not only had the French got the mobile mobile heavy artillery, um, it had got large numbers of tanks, which would make a significant difference to any particular offensive they were involved in. But it also had uh, an air fleet that would move from one front to another. And they had they had combined arms down to a T, uh, in, in in a much greater way than any of the other forces on the Western Front had. And it's because they've been doing it for four and a half, no, for, for over four years. Yeah. Um, and they developed from, as Christina said, from the beginning, they saw what was necessary. One of Joffre's greatest attributes in 14 and 15 was that he saw what was going to be necessary in two or three years' time. He started the heavy heavy artillery roll thing going. He, and his name's gone out of my head now, is he Etienne or something, that when somebody comes to him with a, I've got this idea of a tank, he says, go for it. Uh, he doesn't push him to one side, and therefore the French start developing tanks. Um, and it's the that's what I mean. We've dr- drifted off a little bit there, but he, you've got individuals like him who you know he's. I don't know much about him either. I feel guilty that I knew things about mechanization, but I haven't got to the bottom of where a lot of that came from. And it's, it's true. It should be. He should be. He should have a statue next to Fox's. He should. He should, yeah. I'll, I'll give you the title of the, of the book I have. It's a tough read, I can tell you. It's one of these books that it has... It's good to know more about them because that, that certainly is something that I, the more I've gone into the French army and development, and my big thing now, and I know from the last podcast, is that um, this whole the fact that the British army didn't always learn from the French when they should have been doing, and they were not leaders in terms of developing the means to win the war. The French were the leaders in the development to win the war. Um, we tagged on, the British tagged on, and then the Americans basically had to come in and tag on again uh, well, with French maybe, arms. Maybe French the difference, I've sometimes wondered where the difference is that the French were fighting for survival and we were not. Yeah. If you're fighting for survival, I mean, it's like Ukraine, isn't it? You know, you try all these things. You say, yeah, go for it. Try that. You know, some fella comes to you with a, a new idea and you say, yeah, give it a go. Why not? What are you going to lose? Mm. But we weren't fighting for survival. What do you, but, my, but, and they were. It's my biggest criticism of Anglophilic uh, writers about 1915 is that they just feel that it was just a waste, a waste of men. Waste, it was, casualties were horrendous in 1915, but you have to put yourself into a position of an occupied nation. Mm. Anglophilic can't do that because mostly we've never been occupied. Yeah. Um, we, we don't have that knowledge. We don't have that ingrained. And these people were people who had been occupied only 50 years before. Mm. Were still the, the, the people who were at the top, the, the 70, 80-year-olds, actually were involved in being occupied before. They did not want that again. 
So they thought that they had to keep fighting. It's, it's yeah, it's a, it's a whole different mindset. And that's, that's, a, that's for a, another podcast some other time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Fascinating. I, I, again, um, it's been an absolutely fascinating conversation here. Um, and, and I'm very thankful uh, for everybody having given up a part of your evening to, to come on. Um, final question for the evening. Um, we have for our listeners, can you offer any advice, any guidebooks that perhaps some of you have written uh, or any general instructions on any battlefield walks that would highlight French army experiences during the Great War? And I think we need to begin with Christina on this one. Oh goodness! <laughs> well, I'm going to say I'm going to say all mine. <laughs> I, do, As you I, don't, I don't normally boast. Um, all mine. I mean, any of the any of the walks or tours in mine will tell you about. Will, will they, give you some idea of the French army and what they were doing. Um, the YouTube version. Sorry. No, I was just held up your your uh, book cover here. Oh, thanks One very much. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm. I. I mean, I. Possibly walking in the footsteps of the fallen, um, because that's, um, uh, that that dis- describes and talks about the memorials along the way. So it gives gives people a sort of human face to it. Um, but, but I mean, any of them really. And I mean, the tours in my in the 1917 book. There's a couple of the tours that go down into the the French rear and talk about the medical services and the and the uh, you know the the air services and all that. I mean, any any of them. Um, what I would say is, is if you if you're walking, um, be prepared for bad weather. Uh, if you're in the area that that I write about, be prepared for mosquitoes and ticks in the summer. Don't wear shorts. Um, don't pick stuff up. Uh, don't try and take souvenirs. Uh, don't go off the path. Things are looking very tempting over there in the woods. You know, you can see these funny shapes and. And things sticking up and, well, you know, it's not a good idea to go off the path unless you're with a, a group that actually has permission or knows what it's doing. Um, don't be put off by the fact that uh, you don't speak French. It, 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 won't, it won't matter. There's lots of places to stay these days. There are lots of jeets and bed and breakfasts and, and people are friendly and, you know, the food's good and that. Um, so don't be put off. But remember that if you are in, I mean, France is a huge place and, um there are parts of the front where there are lots of tourists and they're used to tourists and there are parts where there aren't many tourists. And that's, of course, the area that obviously I know and that Steve knows, and uh, especially if you go down in the Vosges and that. Um, you can go a long way either by car or on foot without finding a cafe or, or a, a boulangerie or a supermarket or, or a, and in particular without any toilets. Um, so be prepared for that. Uh, it, it, this is not it, it's it's not um, it's not like going visiting a town. I mean, I suppose if you're in Flanders, uh, you can you're not you're never very far away from the next meal. But I can tell you, you're very you can be a long way away from the next baguette in in uh, in some parts of France. So make sure you've got all that stuff before you set off. And maps, um, Blue Series IGN maps. Um, the the old versions are better than the modern ones. So if you go on eBay and you try and get hold of one of the old versions, you will find there's far more stuff marked on it than there is on the new ones, particularly in, in the Verdun area, the Argonne Forest, San Miel Salient. Um, Blue Series IGN, I, I, they're the ones I like, and for, for Belgium as well. Um, but I, I think, if especially if you're walking, I think you absolutely need those. 
Um, for I mean, otherwise, if you're driving, yeah, I mean, okay, the Michelin maps. But even so, you know, you, I, I like a I like a better map than that. I, I'm not a fan of the GPS for for touring. Uh, I think very useful for pinpointing a place I'm I found or I'm going to. But but for uh, for touring, I I want a map. Um, compass, I suppose. Although I'm not too bothered about a compass personally. Um, a notebook and a pencil, obviously a camera. Uh, spare batteries, you know, all the usual gear. Um, yeah. So, uh, what do other people think? I would say, first of all, I, I'll go ahead and break the silence here. Um, those, that's fantastic advice, Christina. Uh, I've used your book, um, I, the the Walking Verdun book. Uh, I've got to see a whole lot of it, a whole lot of the battlefield that I that I probably would not have ventured off without that's why i wrote it <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. that's why i wrote it and my uh a a rather uh good kind of like a, a dad moment for me was we took the walk the mort arm walk so we parked at cumier yeah. and took the trail went up i believe it was the north face of the hill up to the monument mm. um and then made our way back never saw a soul in the woods yeah. uh, but uh, yeah, like it, um, w- at one point we were on that on that logging road, and um, I told my my son who was with me, I was like, like we need to go down, and he said, like, Are you sure we need to? I think we need to go up, and mm, I'm gonna say it's it's down, man. And uh, I took a gamble, and I was right, so I was uh, I was very pleased. But yeah, that was a fantastic walk, and it was it really. It, like really got to see the ground really got to 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 recognize like hey this is how the germans advanced up to mm. the top of this place you know and um, so very very thankful for for that um steve yeah ba- basically if you're the area around the battle of the frontiers it's not really well visited as christine's uh, one of the reason is is people were visiting if they're visiting the belgian ardennes it's because of visit from a military history point of view, it's because of going to Bastogne and mm. the first airborne and all that malarkey. If they're passing through, it's 50 minutes to Verdun if it's in the first war. So they tend to go, oh yeah, we're here, but mm. might stop here. We can go down to Verdun and explore the battlefield there. Or they may say, oh, it's a Maginot land, got the all the, the forts, Fort de Fairmont, Fort de Ville de Ferte. We'll go and visit that. Because there's not that much on the ground to actually see. But it's worth a detour. Certainly, I'm taking a small group there in uh, May after the Great War Group Congress in Mons. But if you just want to pick one place, just to get, if you're on the way down, you can come off the E411, which is a motorway that runs from uh, Brussels down to Luxembourg. Come off at junction at Vela. You pass through Neuf Chateau. You can see the great, uh, the cemeteries there and so on. To Rossignol, it's about a quarter of an hour. And then you can just get back on the motorway uh, at Ital, which is about another quarter of the way. So you get to Rossignol, and there they've got a walking trail. Uh, and they've also got a sort of self-service museum. Uh, it's only open, it's got restricted hours, but once you're in, you press a button and there's a display. It opened, only opened last year. It explains mm-hmm. a bit about the uh, the build-up to the, the war, but, uh, the plans behind it, and particularly, obviously, the battle at Rossignol itself the effect on the local population, the uh, execution of the civilians at Arlon that were rounded up and, and shot later. And it takes about half an hour. Not only that, there's a walking tour, a signposted walking tour, 
of the various sites of the battle from the perspective of the French and the Germans, but also the civilians. Uh, it shows you, uh, for example, one of the Committee de Maison, which is because the Germans torched the place afterwards for uh, as reprisals, how do you house the homeless? So eventually they're in shacks or barns or whatever, but people started contributing money to build and they designed a sort of a building which was like a elongated garage, but we would sort of say a single story, with uh, it was a brick building with a corrugated tin roof. And there's ones that still exists uh, in Rossignol, so you can see that there. Uh, you walk on the various memorials, you can go in the chateau where the hospital was, uh, you can look at the, the church, which still has two shell cases embodied in the, in the side of the wall uh, that didn't explode. Uh, and it, these various sites, it take you, if you did the full walk, a couple of hours. But it's, uh, if you're on the way down ever from uh, Luxembourg, sorry, from Brussels to Luxembourg, and you want to break your journey, rather than stopping at a, a service station, take some sandwiches, come off the motorway at Verla, down to Rossignol, spend an hour or so there, and get back on the motorway uh, at Etal and continue your journey south. That's awesome. And Steve, I'll, I'll be actually asking you for a, a bit more detailed information. A buddy of mine just mentioned that that um, Rossignol is about 45 minutes away from uh, Dansemurza, um, yeah. which itself is nor- north mm-hmm. of Verdun. So yeah. he was asking, you know, like, what do you think about a day trip up there? So um, that would, yeah. would be fantastic. Just, just one thing, if you look, it's the Luxembourg, sorry, Belgium's organised in the various areas. Obviously, you've got Wallonie, it's its own tourist board. But the province of Luxembourg, that's Belgium, Luxembourg, not the country of Luxembourg, has its own tourist information site. FTLB are the initials, but they produce a free guide. If you pop into a local, one of the tourists, you'll be able to pick up a paper copy. But they've also got a, a copy online through one of the uh, fancy systems. You can look through the pages on it. So it's worth going online, anyone's thinking of it in that way. And checking that out. So it's called uh, Traces et Memoir, Guy de Lestre, and it's Federation Tourism Luxembourg Belge. Awesome. Jim? Um, just to add on to the, all of the books that Christina was talking about, are in the Battleground Europe series from Pen and Sword. Mm-hmm. And recently, for people who are going down to the Somme, um, then it's really worth looking at that range because there are. Uh, two new books, but well, new, a couple of years old now, by sadly passed away Dave Amara, uh, who was passionate about the French, and uh, it's partly in to some extent some of my passion for that has come from him because we had plans to do all sorts of things in the year he died. So I was quite taken by that one because I'd been working on the, the, the Artois battles and he said, oh, I've, I, I'm really interested in those. Let's walk the field. We were going to walk the whole of the Notre Dame de Lorette area and so on. And he sadly died suddenly. Um, but he's got those two books, which is basically the French on the Somme. I can't remember the titles now and I don't have them here because um, they're all piled upstairs somewhere. But they they are definitely something to take. If you're going down to the Somme, don't just do the big British Somme bits, but go down to the French parts and get his guides. They're, they're, they're like a lot of the Battlefield, Battleground Europe ones. That's it. There's that one. And there's also, I think it's the F- Somme before 1916, I think, is something like that title, which is the, the French actually on the British part of the Somme in pre-1916. 
before the British went there. So, because there was a lot of fighting going on in exactly the same ground that everybody's walking for the British. So that's the first thing I, I like to say from the French point of view. Um, unfortunately, there's very, very little you can get around Ypres for the French being around there. Um, and following the French in different places. Um, but if you go to the Passchendaele Museum there, there is quite a lot of information on the French element to that as well, because obviously they're not so Anglo-centric being a, being a Belgian uh, um, museum. That's in Zonnebecke. Um On the Artois battles, um, there's going to be fairly soon, hopefully, a guide to the northern Arras battles, uh, of 14 to 18. So all the 14 and 15 will be covered in that. That's uh, a pen, That's a helium book by me. Uh, the, I've, the Southern Guide is already out, but the Northern Guide is not actually fully finished yet. <laughs> so that might be summer before that's there. But there, um, there's also another, there's also a North and South Guide by um, some other people as well. So there are guides to the, to the Arras battles, but the others don't cover the French very much. They'll cover a little bits of it, but not as much. Not as much. I'm hoping as people will find that they're following. Certainly, the second and third battles of our trial will be following in uh, in my book. Um, but also another area that I've got to know now because I had to do some work for it for the uh, Salient Point magazine was the Vosges. Now you're going even further afield then. But if anybody is heading right down into that sort of direction, um, the Vosges is fairly compact. And there are there are websites which will lead you around the different areas of that. And what I've seen down there is that you like a bit of Verdun, but even more so, you are stepping back into the footsteps of the people fighting there, French and Germans, because it's all on mountainsides. It's all in rock. So the trenches are in rock. They're still there. But a lot of the infrastructure is still there as well. There's the um, – on the German side, there's still a – the remains of a sort of, uh, I've got the German in my head now, Zeilemann, uh sort of mechanical system for getting stuff up, yeah, for getting stuff up into the up into the top. Um, you know, it's it's got it's got everything there. There's still bits of there's still barbed wire lying around everywhere. It's it's an incredible area. I only know it from photographs, but it is somewhere. If you want again the the sort of French experience, then if you are heading somewhere into the southern parts of France or towards the southern parts of France, then a trip to the Vosges, which is a beautiful area anyway to visit on holiday. I'm planning to do it at some point. Uh, but there's a lot of um, evidence and stories there about the French and Germans fighting in the Great War. So they're, um, they're sort of trying to get some of the French ideas. Um, I think... I think in terms of the, I don't know the Champagne area as much. Uh, the Chamander Dam, I know pretty well. Um, there are quite a number of publications, but again, the the French have quite a, lot, a good guide system to that area as well. It tends to be a bit, a little bit sort of polarized towards the Cavalier de, 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 de Dragon and one or two other places. Uh, but if you've got some of your listeners who, if you can get down to the Soissons area, um, then. You just have to drive the Chemin de Dam, basically. Navigation-wise, you do you do a two-way trip from Soissons. Mm-hmm. You drive across the top of the Chemin de Dam, and then you come down and follow the um, follow the end back to Soissons. Uh, and you've got so much stuff to cover there that, uh, um, and so many cemeteries to visit, certainly in the valley. Um, there's a lot to do there. And again, there are local guide area uh, guide things available online for somebody who goes there. So there's a lot of possibilities for people who want to do a little bit more and, and just travel a little bit further and do that. 
Don't be afraid of it. That's what I'd say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just go, just go <laughs> that's the thing. Just go and do it. Yep. Especially the Chemin de Dame, because that's, mm. like I said, there, there is a, the French recognize that as a tourist spot for the Great War. There's not many, the French don't do it very often, but they do it there um, to, a certain, to a certain extent. A lot of notice boards, a lot of, uh, a lot of information around to, to sort of look at. And certainly you can spend days around that area and uh, off down to the south of the Chemin de Dame. Oh, excellent. Excellent. James, Alex, any, uh, any, any last, last thoughts here? <clears throat> well, I was just going to mention about, um, the Champagne region and walking Champagne because it's very flat in certain parts. When you get to Massage, you get a little bit more hilly, but for the most part, it's actually quite flat. And because it's now farmland, a lot of it, it's got obviously elements a bit like the Somme, but you've got the ability, you can chicane your way through and walk through, for example, the 25th of September um, lines from Aubervilliers to Ville-sur-Tourbe or Tourbe. I never remember if there's an accent on the E or not. Um, and you can basically just walk through the field and just chicane your way along. But again, you don't have any, you need to get a map. You have, as Christine is saying, you need to have that map because you don't, the French, the French lines is not like the, when you go further north where you've got your lines when you've got all these lovely GPS systems or that. You just don't have that on the French side. So you just have to have that map and just go and either superimpose a trench map on top of it to then work out, right, okay, where I'm standing here, this used to be the front line, right? If I move further over here, we can move over to X regiment, we're here. Again, it's you need to do a bit more work, but honestly, I quite enjoy that because it just means you're you're thinking a lot more about it rather than just go right. Let me get this on my phone. Here we go. We're here. Um, with this, you actually really get yourself really involved. Um, so that's one thing I, I would say. And, and, and as Jim said, around the Chemin de Dam, it's a kind of a must going up onto the Chemin de Dam, then down to Soupia as well. Seeing the, um, the cemeteries, you've got cemeteries on both sides of the roads because uh, they ran out of space, etc. It's, yeah. And then you've got, for example, the Italian cemetery uh, at Supia as well is worth seeing. And then the Champagne, you've got the Russian cemeteries, you've got Polish cemeteries. Um, so again, it brings that perspective of this is a, a European war as well, um, with all the different, all the different nations involved. Awesome. Awesome. That's definitely an area that, that needs a whole lot more ex exploration. James? Yeah, I'll say, you know, it's a bit harder for, for us to get over there. Um, and I sadly haven't been since before the pandemic. So um, definitely uh, I'm jealous that Alex needs to take me to Champagne because that's something I've been working pretty heavily on. And check out Albrive. If anybody knows any connections with the French Army and Sweep, um, you know, would love to get onto their firing range uh, for a bit on a day that they're not practicing. Well, I'll, um, I'll DM you about that. <laughs> but there's somebody, uh, there's somebody I know who's a mayor in one of the villages who is a former French army. <laughs> good to know. That's where the, the <laughs> connections are for. Um, but yeah, I will say, you know, for for books, we've got the expert on on so many places, and I'm going to call out. Uh, one of Christina's books in particular, um, for done on the left bank, uh, Thank because you. for, uh, uh, one of the things she does very well, um, that I'll highlight, uh, for Americans who are going to the Musa Argonne, um, 
keep in mind that you're on the Verdun battlefield. And it, it mm-hmm. and it's another one of these ways that we've talked about earlier that the American and French experience is inevitably intertwined. Um, so much of the American jumping off point, uh, so much of the American experience, if you're there to study the AEF, is, uh, revolves around the battles on Hill 304, around the battles at Avocourt uh, and Le Mortem. Um, so definitely pick that up and, and make sure that you check out not only the September to November 1918 actions, but keep in mind that Maurice Genevois talks about passing Montfaucon in, in 1914, and, mm. and there, there's there's lots of other interesting actions that take place in the area that you might not be there initially to uh, to explore, but you'll end up coming across. So have have that book in the back of your pocket to for when you do. Oh, that's that's fantastic. Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Like um, the Americans jumped off pretty much like on, under the shadow of, of 304 and, and like Le Mortem on in uh, September of 1918. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So we easily, I think, passed the two and a half hour mark. Um, and I somewhat apologize because I know it's 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 getting pretty late for for you folks over in over in Europe so thank you again so so much for coming um i i have to say i, I don't know that i want to make these any shorter because these conversations are so rich and i think there's so much for listeners to digest here and and learn and um oh my goodness like it just we have this rare ability that that i don't think a lot of people have that, that we can get really deep into this subject and it's it's endlessly fascinating um I, I suspect for for all of us here obviously um so i will wrap this up i hope you folks uh um look forward to us getting together again we'll we'll talk about the french army in 1914 we'll we'll get that figured out here in a in a day or so we'll, we'll start that conversation um and for listeners i hope you guys have uh, enjoyed this conversation and uh, very much look forward to the next one. So thank you, everyone, for, for coming this, this evening. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. And we will, um, yeah, and I will go ahead and.